You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Welcome to Twitch Asylum Podcast number six. We're back. Uh, yeah, where were we? Well, I was out enjoying the real world <laughs> and uh, the great weather that we've been having in Portland. It's been very sunny. We've had a bit of a heat wave. And on days like that, I just want to be outside. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I, I haven't had the same issue. I, I've been uh, doing a lot of different things like uh, traveling for work and... Uh, my wife like thought I was taking too much time editing the podcast, so we uh, we had to make some decisions of uh, do we really want to continue doing the podcast or how do we change the way we're doing the podcast? So we uh, thought about it for quite a bit, and uh, we were going to do a couple shows, and then of course I was uh, told I had to go on another trip, so we missed the last two attempts for the podcast because I was traveling to Austin, Texas, and also I was where, where else was I? Oh, New Jersey. I was also in New Jersey. Which so. did you like better? I like neither. I really, uh, I just kind of want to be back here. You'd rather be back home. Of course, the second one hit right during E3, so I was all ready to watch G4, but I, I couldn't watch G4 because uh, I was on the road, so I had to use the uh, laptop to uh, to watch E3 basically uh, via GameSpot and uh, reading a lot, bunch of blog entries, which maybe wasn't so bad because what I heard about the G4 uh, broadcast wasn't very good. Well, welcome back. <laughs> welcome back to Portland. Yes, it's, it's really good to be back. So uh, we had to make a decision. Uh, one thing that happened is uh, since our first podcast, a lot of the listenership seemed to kind of be decreasing. And even though we, we asked people, like, if you want, come and post the forums or post feedback, we really didn't get any. So uh, so we were, like, spending way too much time editing the show. So we were like, do we continue doing the podcast? And Woody and I and, and Tom got together and we talked about it and we are like, well, we really enjoy doing the podcast, but we really like doing it on the topics that we enjoy talk- talking about. So... So what we decided is we're just going to do what we enjoy. And a lot of what we enjoy is uh, talking about sort of the history, I guess, of video games. Yeah, the old days, the history, the retro topics. Old school. We're not going to completely stop talking about the new games. We'll still talk about what we're playing and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely. just going to be more freeform, just what we want to remember and what we want to say about what's going on with us. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, we kind of felt this pressure before that we had to play everything that came out for the Xbox 360 or... Or, you know, get the PlayStation 3 the day it came out so we could talk about it. And, and I guess we're just going to be more lax on that stuff. I mean, we're going to do what we want to do, uh, what we feel like doing. Um, but we're going to also focus again on, on like kind of the history of video games, talking about consoles, computers, the key figures, really anything related to uh, to classic gaming. But then again, we're going to talk about news again and uh, and what we're playing. So, And we're going to kind of kill that, that segment that we used to call the rant. So I guess uh, the rant's kind of dead. We're going to call it more like the discussion because a lot of times I'm, I'm not that that you know I don't get that upset about things so <laughs> I really don't have things to rant on so one of the issues was we couldn't figure out what to rant on so it's so like this time instead of a rant we're gonna have a discussion on E3 uh, what we heard about it via uh, the podcast and and the video streams that we got uh, and we're looking at so uh, 
So that's that. And I guess we're also going to limit the number of items we're going to discuss in the news to news items that we're uh, particularly interested in. And we want to thank the people who have stuck with us and kept listening. And I, I personally want to thank the people who have added us to their friends list on Xbox Live. And it's cool to see more names showing up in the leaderboards. Yeah, even though some of them have beat me and we'll get to that. Yeah, some, some of them have topped your score, haven't they, Chris? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Tom. I'm still a little bit hurt about it. So so, right. uh, so this episode, we're gonna, again, we're going to talk about E3. And we're also going to take a retro look at the Apple II. Who, they just uh, celebrated their uh, 30th anniversary there a couple uh like a month and a half half ago or so, so uh, we'll discuss that in the next segment. All right. On to the show. Welcome to the discussion. What are we talking about this time? The discussion this time is about E3, which is the biggest trade show of the year. Electronic Entertainment Expo, I believe. Yeah, I think Would that's that be what right? it is. Yeah. All right. So uh, none of us went to E3. I don't think you guys went, did you? No, I have been to it before, but I didn't go to this one. I was there in spirit. <laughs> They're in spirit. So, That's very good. You watched it on G4, though, right? Yeah, I watched a lot of coverage on G4, uh, so yeah. you can feel sympathy for me. Sorry for me. I watched a <laughs> lot of the videos that people had posted to YouTube.com, and I read a lot of reports about it. I uh, Everything, I, I did it all through the internet, obviously, and GameSpot had pretty good. They had the feeds live, which is kind of nice, the press conference feeds, and... Um, and then I gotta say that I did listen to a lot of the One Up podcasts. They were each night they would get together the One Up podcast and uh, do do a recording from the show and talk about what they saw that day. That was pretty good. They were a bit vulgar at times, but uh, but I guess that's okay. So I have to give them props for the One Up uh, podcast uh, at, at E3. But to be honest, the rest of the site still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start off with let's talk about Sony. So what did you guys think about Sony's uh, showing at the at E3? I was rather un- underwhelmed, really, rather disappointed. Um, I was hoping for a lot more for a lot less cost. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly the cost is something that uh, I think everybody's reacted to. That the PS3 is going to be very expensive, um, five or six hundred dollars depending on configuration. Uh, but then again, there's that quote that sticks with me, and we might get to this again in the news, but where Sony said, well, it's the PS3, millions of people will buy it even if there are no games. Right. I mean, I, and I think that's, for the most part, I think the launch, that's true, right? I think there's an element of truth to that. It kind of disturbs me that they would say that, though, because it seems like a bad attitude to have towards the the consumers. Well, and I, I've actually seen someone posted online a graph of Costs of the various consoles oh, yeah, compared cool. with inflation, and the play the PlayStation Three won't even be the most expensive. In fact, it was close to equivalent to what the twenty six hundred cost back in the day when it was released, um, adjusted for inflation. But at the same time, they I also didn't s- know inflation was that bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it must yeah. be pretty bad. But at the same, it's time, also been a lot of years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> too many. But at the same time, they also said like they didn't care about how many launch titles they had, and it's things like that that are really disappointing. I mean, combined with the high cost, it's 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 definitely they don't they don't have anything going for them except that they are Sony, which is huge. But that doesn't mean they can't be stopped. Right. I, I, the thing about it is, when I look at it, I kind of think of the PSP 
because I know Tom and I went out and bought a PSP. We're like, oh, Sony, it's going to be a great gaming console. And it's superior to the DS because it's got all this cool hardware and it looks great and stuff. Yeah. And uh, I kind of look at the whole Nintendo Wii versus Sony the way I look at the PSP versus the DS. And, and how has that one turned out, you know? Well, I, how it's turned out for me is I've wound up being kind of disappointed by the PSP. I mean, it's fun. I, it's great for watching movies on. It's great for playing certain games. But the controller is really not the best to hold in your hand and, and play with for an extended period of time. There's a lot of ga- styles of games that the controller doesn't seem to work very well for. And it's made me think that maybe the DS is a better system for just a... I mean, I'm in line for the DS when it comes out, the DS Lite. I can't wait to get it. So. Yeah. Right, and even for what the... The PSP seemed to be good for movies. I heard that Sony's uh, stopping that whole lot. I don't think it's Sony's decision. I, I think it was a lot of the movie companies aren't making money. Right. So they're okay. pulling them. So. Right. So it's just it, the movies aren't even going to be a factor on them. So uh, here's a question for you, Tom. Would you upgrade past 1.5 and get rid of your homebrew to play the games that are on PSP? No, not, <laughs> See, not me not, neither. Not until there are much, much better games on on, yeah, that's thing. on PSP to upgrade for. I'd rather play the Neo Geo emulator on the PSP than anything that's out for the PSP right now. I mean, I, I mean that's totally being honest. I just don't see anything on it that I that I like. And too many for me. Too many of the PSP games are just ports of PS2 games that I already played. Yeah. And so it doesn't feel like I'm getting some cool new experience. It's, yeah, I can play Dynasty Warriors for the umpteenth time, and now I can play it on the PSP. But I've already played that game a million times. It's a fun game, but yeah. you know, it's not anything new. And not necessarily great ports either. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Okay, so uh, the PSP, did, did you see anything at the E3 that talked about the PSP? Did I say PS3 or PS3? It PSP. Is yeah, PSP. Did you yeah, I, I don't even remember anything about it. No. Yeah, that's the sad part. I don't remember anything either. Totally missing in action. <laughs> Nothing. That's I think they might, okay. have, they might have talked about how you can use it as a controller for the PS3. Okay, so that that's the one time I did hear about it, is they were talking in the press conference <clears> that uh, you can use a PSP as a rear view mirror in uh, Gran Turismo, I think it is. So... <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know Where why. Exactly so what? You, you put it up on top of your television, and <laughs> I think somebody, it's the rearview mirror. Somebody's holding it. Somebody holds it in front of your forehead. <laughs> somebody's smoking something. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, like from a demo perspective, oh look at that's great. You can use it, and it shows your rearview mirror. But I don't see the applicability, and I think that's a lot of what Sony's doing. It's like, oh, it's great technology. It's look, it's Blu-ray. It's this. It's that, and they forgot about the games. You know, and like, if, is it really useful? So. So let's talk maybe a little bit about the press conference. Uh, I know Woody saw the press conference. I think Tom looked at the transcripts. Yeah, I looked at transcripts. So first of all, i got to say, out of all the, the presentations, what's with the use of PowerPoint? I mean, it's a video game show. You'd think it'd be a bit more flashy than that. I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, dude, this is like all the meetings we sit in all week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So boring. <laughs> and i got to say my favorite part of the whole press conference was the Ridge Racer thing. So I don't know, did you remember that part? So essentially what happened is they, I think it's Kaz, is that his name? The dude from Sony? I don't even know his name, but something like that. He comes out and he's uh, showing the fact, I guess this is a part with the PSP, that it can play, um, they're going to let you download PlayStation games and play them <laughs> on, the, on the PSP, right? So yeah, he's like, uh, he's, he's kind of like trying to copy Nintendo and get that whole nostalgic feeling, but he's trying like way too hard. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so he's like, he's like, so... Uh, Let's see if you guys can uh, decide what game this is from seeing the title screen. 
you know, and it uh, and it brings up the PlayStation logo, and it's like, oh, that really brings back memories for me. How about you? And it's like just dead silent. Like there's <laughs> nice. no nobody says anything. Right. So then it comes up with the Galaga screen, you know, where he's shooting Galaga, and he's like, oh, maybe this is a hint. And you know, dead silence. And he's like, it comes up, and he's like, it's Ridge Racer, and you hear a lone woot in the background <laughs> <laughs> then he's like he's like no it's ridge racer and they get it and then people just start laughing it's just like embarrassing almost you know uh, it's like nobody because there's no nostalgia with ridge racer i'm sorry no there's I've not actually played it on my playstation because i got this set up in my room which we'll maybe talk about later and uh yeah it doesn't i, I like i would have more nostalgia for something like daytona usa or you yeah. know just I don't know. Ridge Racer is a fun game, but maybe Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, Crash been, Bandicoot would have been a better yeah. choice. But uh, but yeah, Ridge Racer didn't uh, didn't really work. But they showed that compatibility, and I was kind of like ho hum, and uh, you know whatever. So so uh, we talked a bit about the PSP and the PS3. A little bit about the prices. Uh, touch on that again. So uh, what do you think of the prices? Four ninety nine for the uh, broken version and five ninety nine <laughs> for the uh, full version. Why do they always have to release a broken version? Well, Why? I mean, it just seems so ridiculous. Nobody who buys that is going to be happy with it in the long run. Well, and if so. the broken version was say half the price, or you know even two hundred dollars less, but for a hundred dollars less to own something that's never going to be as good as the full price one. So it's why, just why isn't it as good? What are some of the reasons you guys think, don't think it's as good? Well, the, the main thing that can't be upgraded between the broken and the real version is the HDMI output. The, so why, do, why does that matter, though? Because here's the thing about the HDMI output, and I've heard this you know, on a lot of podcasts recently. They're like ripping on that. And why is that important? Well, if you have a really new HDTV and it has an HDMI input, you're going to get a good picture quality. And also, I think you can use it. Can't you use it with computer monitors? No, uh, that's uh, you might be able to, but that's Some not, that's not the real issue. The real issue with HDMI is it has, I think it's called HDCP built in, which is the high definition copy protection. Copy protection, yeah. So the deal is, if you're playing games on the PS3, you can still get them at 1080i or whatever HD resolution that you want. But when Blu-ray comes out, if the movie uh, studios decide to copy protect it, which I'm guessing they will, if you don't have an HD cp style connection it'll only output it at 480p so it'll downscale it yeah well yeah it won't it won't output at the highest resolution so that's the deal it's not going to affect games though and i think that's a misnomer a lot of people are saying oh i'm going to be able to have to play my games at 480p and that's just not true the games will be fine it's some movies that you won't be able to uh have and that's only if they put the copy protection on but the biggest thing but you know they will have the copy they're gonna have the copy protection and what's funny is sony owns a lot of those movies so they're kind of you know they're the ones that are going to make the decision, ultimately, probably right, on that. Right. So, um, but the other thing I'd say about it is that, uh, you know, overall, I, I just don't understand why they wouldn't have made that an optional thing. Like, just make it a kind of cable connection where you can decide to buy the higher-end cable or the lower-end cable. Why does it have to be something that you have to buy a completely different console to have? Yeah, that is strange. It's a, it's a weird decision. All right, so I guess another big announcement they had there was their, uh, their new uh, controller. You guys want to talk about that a bit? Same as the old. <laughs> well, the biggest thing that they announced, I guess, is that it's going to have uh, spatial feedback, kind of like the Wii. It's going to be able to detect. Yeah, so in a way, they're sort of copying the uh, some of the properties of the Wii, but yet they don't. They're not going to have uh, vibration, right? 
No, they didn't pay the money to get the vibration. So it's it. actually going to be a worse controller yeah. than the Dual Shock that we have now because there's going to be no shock. I right? think you're going to call it like the Dual Shockless Spatial or something like that. Hmm. I don't know. I think I'm going to miss the vibration. I mean, that that adds something to the game to have that you know that feeling like when something explodes and the controller vibrates. Yeah, and from what I heard, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it, it sounded like Warhawk didn't control that well with that. And what's even I think I find more humorous is the fact that uh, apparently none of the third-party developers even knew they were going to have this. Did you guys hear yeah. that? <laughs> so uh, they didn't build anything. Total surprise. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of them are like, hey, well, that'd been nice to know about till oh, six months ago. And that so. was the thing is that I was willing to give them credit for not copying Nintendo originally because I thought, oh, well, of course they've had this in development forever, you know, and it's obvious add um, motion detection to the controllers, so it just happened they're both together. But the fact that none of the developers even knew about this for the last six months, it really does feel like they all of a sudden decided in the last two weeks, oh, let's throw some motion sensors in there now that we heard Nintendo's going to do this. It, it, very poor showing. So let's talk about some of the games that we saw. Obviously, uh, Warhawk. Did you guys see that? What did you think of that? Looks great. Yeah, it looks it looked good to me, too. And that's a game I used to love to play back in the day. So uh, so I don't know. I, I think that looks pretty good. Um, they also showed the new Metal Gear Solid. What did you guys think of that? That looked pretty cool. Of course, I'm a fan of the series, so any new Metal Gear Solid game is going to be interesting to me. Is there anything you saw that was like unique about it, though? I mean, is it any different than any other games that are out you know, now that are like those kind of third-person perspective-type shooter games? Um, not really. It, it looked a lot like a lot of other games. In fact, one of the things I thought about um, all these games, not just the Sony ones, but all of them, is that when I saw the video demos back-to-back, it really struck me how much a lot of these games looked the same as each other. And I think it's because... You know, we've gotten to the point where everybody has a game that's some sort of third-person game where you can run, you can shoot, you can get in a vehicle, you can do all these same kind of things. And it almost is becoming hard to tell them apart. I mean, there's, you know, Siphon Filter, Metal Gear Solid. Um, a lot of these games are really the same idea as each other. And it's almost like we're getting to the point where all games are going to combine those same elements, yeah. you know? I agree. Well, it's the accusation that's been leveled by Nintendo forever is that they're all going, they're all focusing on the flashy graphics, and none of them are focused on groundbreaking gameplay. Yeah, and that's kind of true. These these games all look incredible, especially in the demos. But I, for the mo- especially on the Sony, I haven't seen for the most part any new gameplay styles. Yeah, I totally agree. So the one game that I think was most impressive overall by Sony, at least from what I heard, was Assassin's Creed. Yeah, just a little bit of that that I saw. It had a really cool sort of artistic look to it that set but it apart was that a little. The gameplay? Did you see the actual gameplay? Because all I saw was like a full motion video. No, style. I couldn't see any gameplay. But <laughs> but from the screens, it at least had a interesting visual style that made it look a little different than everything else. See, I, from what I heard though, this is kind of funny, and this is a total rumor. But I heard that they were actually running Assassin's Creed on the. Uh, on a 360. <laughs> that would be funny if that's true. There was a news article that's, that stated that, and I was like, oh, I guess I wouldn't put it past them. And from what I heard, I mean, it was Ubisoft making it, right? So I, how often has Ubisoft done exclusives? I mean, I see Assassin's Creed coming out for the six, 360. I mean, totally. They might they might get the exclusive yeah. initially, but it's going to be on the 360 as well. So, But maybe it'll look better on the PS3. I think that's going to be kind of interesting to see is... From what I've heard now, the PS3 graphics aren't really better than the 360. So, uh, from what people have seen, so it'll be interesting to see over time, like the second generation games, if they're actually getting better. 
So is that about enough of Sony, or do you guys have anything else to say on Sony? That's all for me. I think we can move on to Microsoft. Microsoft press conference? Yeah. It was a definitely different uh, feel than the PS uh, or the PlayStation 1, because uh, you know, it started off with a boom. They start off with Gears of War. It was like straight away, boom, here's Gears of War, Cliffy B playing it. It was cool. I, I like the way they did that. Um, so what did you guys think of Gears of War? How'd that look? That looked very nice. Yeah, it looks very, incredible. very nice. So one thing about Gears of War that I've heard is that it's actually more um, a slower-paced game, but the demo that they showed there was pretty pretty high action, so I'm not sure how that will impact the final game, is if it's going to be more action or if it's going to be a, more of a slow game, more of like a, like Ghost Recon. Well, I kind of hope it is a slower-paced game because I enjoy that style of game more than just frantic running and shooting. Yeah, I totally agree. So the other thing they talked about... Uh, was that there's going to be a lot of new arcade games, real arcade games coming to Xbox Live. Do you guys even care about that? Well, it's this, back to the same issue of it's games that I've already played. It's games that I already own on other consoles. Hey, but it's Pac-Man, dude. But what's going to be nice it's about Defender, it... It's Defender, all right? <laughs> but I already own Rally that. X. I already own those games on other consoles. Dig Dug. And it's not going to be... It's not going to look any better on HD, right? It's the same game. Um, they do do some upgrades. What I am going to like about it is just the leaderboards on Xbox Live to be that's, able to see everybody's cool. scores. I mean, that's going to be fun. I have to admit that. I will play it for that, I think. Yeah, I hear Billy Mitchell's getting a 360 just to play Pac-Man. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm excited about those games because I, I don't have those on any old consoles still working anymore. So I'm excited to play those again. That, that should be fun. And it'll certainly be good for people who, you know maybe are new to the system, maybe new to video gaming, to be able to experience those old games. I, I can't argue that. They're, they're fun games. It's just I happen to already have them. But don't you think that's really just a response to Nintendo and the fact that they've talked about the virtual console being available? Oh, definitely. And, yeah. And yeah, it is. It's like they don't have these properties, uh, Microsoft doesn't, of these older games. So what they're going to do is go out and talk to all these arcade manufacturers and, or, uh, you know, and say, hey, can we get your games for Xbox Live so we can kind of build this nostalgic collection, you know, something other than Ridge Racer. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, man, if they just had Ridge Racer, that would be the killer app. Yeah. I also thought that during the press conference, uh, Peter Moore did a much better job than Jay Allard did last year. I thought that was cool. I thought he, he kind of, the way he presented stuff, he just had much, I felt a lot more confident in what he was saying with Jay Allard. He's trying to be this hip, techno, cool guy last year, and I just kind of got turned off by that. They also talked about uh, Luminous Live, which is, uh, I guess, uh, Warner Brothers is going to put music videos in a version of Luminous and make it part of Xbox Live, which I'm kind of, I think that'll be cool because, uh, you know, I played Luminous quite a bit on the PSP. Yeah, I do too. I think that's one of my favorite PSP games, and it's a fun game to have some more content and have real music videos and maybe be able to download new ones. It, that sounds fun. I think it'd be fun if they had like a multiplayer version on there. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that I thought was cool about Microsoft versus Sony is that the games kind of throughout the conference, they just kind of inundated you with a lot of these. They're just like boom, 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 different games. Uh, some of the ones that I, I remember were like Lost Planet. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, Rockstar's Table Tennis. Um, Mass Effect, obviously. I think that was kind of the game of the show for the from, from Microsoft perspective. Did you look at anything on Mass Effect? Haven't seen that one, no. Yeah. But there's a, there's a long list and there's a, you know World Series of Poker. I just want to comment on that a little bit. 
Okay, World Series of Poker on the 360. Why would you play a poker game on the 360? Okay, here's, here's why, you know, you know why? Because why, you can I... already play poker games online on the PC, and you can even play for real money. Now, why would you want to play some the... weird poker game on the Xbox 360? The PC is too complicated to use. Yeah. There's another reason, too. You know, Microsoft's coming out with that camera. Or I think it, it's not out yet, but the camera that you can uh, connect. Oh, the sort of their version of the iToy. Yeah. Right. And so they're looking at a lot of games where seeing other people would make sense. And from what I hear, World of the Series of Poker, they thought would be a good game because you can kind of see what everybody's doing. Are they bluffing or not? And so maybe that's a good use of it. I don't know. Oh, we'll see. Maybe maybe I'm wrong and it'll be really popular. So some other ones that they mentioned were Dead Rising, which looks great. That's a shopping mall type one where you go and you have a bunch of undead people yeah. coming after you. Saints Row, uh, <coughs> Too Human, which I guess was underwhelming. Uh, Crackdown, 99 Nights, uh, Superman Returns, which is multi-platform. I think that's out pretty soon. And the one that I'm actually excited about is NCAA Football uh, 2007, because Woody and I have had many, many a war oh, yes. NCAA Football. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I know many people probably hate the sports games, but I can't wait for the next-gen version of that. So Now, what about uh, Viva Pinata? That sounds like a really wacky game, and it's got a huge budget. It's got a lot of hype behind it. What did you think of that? Did you did you watch a video on Viva Pinata? No, I didn't watch the whole thing. I've seen little clips of it before, yeah. though. Okay, I, for me, it's not a game I'm going to be playing. I think it's more geared toward kids, right? Because yeah. Microsoft has this whole, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a gaming system for adults and uh, or at least older kids. And uh, Viva Pinata is kind of their attempt to use Rare to uh, develop a game that uh, appeals to more than uh, a younger audience, I guess. Right? Trying to cover the whole family. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, it looked kind of cool. The graphics were okay. It looked like a, a typical like farming type simulation thing where you grow these little pinata deals and they right. can fight each other, or whatever, and, and things go on. And I mean, that's just not my my game. So for me, I'm not excited. I think it's cool if they can get other people to get into the mind the console. Uh, I don't think it's gonna you know compete with Nintendo based on Viva Pinata, but uh, <laughs> but I guess it's a step in the right direction. Uh, obviously, we talked about Mass Effect. Uh, that looks like a really cool game. Um, the trailer I watched was pretty amazing. You can download all that stuff on... Well, I guess maybe that's one thing we should talk about. Probably the coolest thing that Microsoft did uh, during the E3 is allowing all that content to be available for you to download on Xbox Live. Yeah. So all the videos were on Xbox Live. Uh, there were demos of certain games, which we'll get to later. I just thought that was really cool. I mean, and that's not something anybody else that was there was doing so well but the people whose consoles haven't come out yet can't do that i mean microsoft has the advantage that they're already out in the market they already have through the 360s there they can announce new games for it and and here's the demo i mean you can't do that if the console hasn't shipped yet it's very true tom it's very true (laughs) but i just thought it was cool that they did that um yeah they even came up with i mean they didn't have to do it it's something they that they did did come up with it is Um, nice so i was excited too about uh, grand theft auto 4 yeah, see, that was kind of weird, right? Because uh, as soon as uh, um, Peter Moore, he like ri- lifted up his shoulder to reveal his uh, second tattoo, I was, I was expecting the new Halo, and it was a GTA 4. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's an exclusive for a little while because, you know, the PS3 won't be released, so it'll be only on the Xbox 360. How do you think that'll drive sales of 360, if at all? I don't know how much it'll drive more of the 360, um, but it does mean that it may... People may lack buying the PlayStation, or may may not need to buy the PlayStation because a lot. I know a lot of the way, a lot of the reason the PlayStation PS2 was sold 
was for that game specifically. That was really a driver for the PlayStation 2. Well, I think with the next generation consoles being so expensive, you guys, how many people do you think are going to buy more than one next generation system? I, I think I will because I'm a game fanatic, but do you think the average person is going to buy 360 and PS3 and Wii? I mean, that's a lot of money to be shown I mean, out. You know, like a couple... Well, it seems like forever since we skipped uh, all that time. But uh, a while back when we were talking about, you know, am I going to buy all the consoles? I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy the PS3. I'm going to buy the Nintendo Wii. Uh, I'm not buying the PS3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's too expensive, and I don't really see any reason to buy the PS3 at this point. I'm sure I'll have one eventually, but, you know, it's probably a couple years down the road. I'm- okay, so if you guys, who are, are pretty into games, are already saying, I'm not going to buy, you know, I'm not going to buy both the 360 and the PS3, what do you think the average person who isn't even as interested in games as we are. I mean, they're not going to buy multiple next-generation consoles, right? Well, that's what worries me. Is I've always been <clears> against <throat> Microsoft specifically and a fan of uh, the PlayStation. I've always been impartial, I just want to say. But, <laughs> but uh, really, for this generation of games, um, I don't know that I'm going to get the PlayStation. It's definitely the other two consoles that have my interest yeah, at the moment. And wait till Microsoft drops the price, dude. That's what's going to happen right on the launch. Oh, it's a uh, four ninety nine and five ninety nine, and uh, the the premium three sixty is two ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, does that make any sense? Like, who, you could buy two of them. Well, that's what Sony did to Microsoft last time, isn't it? They dropped their prices right around the time Microsoft came out. Could be. I I don't remember. Uh, Revenge is sweet. Now, what might happen though is we know that in Japan the three sixty really didn't go over so well. So let's suppose that that's when the, it. <laughs> let's, that's taking it mildly. Okay, mildly. But <laughs> but let's suppose now the PS3 comes out and lots of people in Japan buy it. Not that many people here buy it because the people who would have bought it already have a 360 and it's too expensive. Are we going to create a really fragmented market where you know all the PS3 games are coming out in Japan, the Japanese players are playing one set of games, the U.S. players are playing a different set of games? Are we going to have a kind of cultural divide like that? I don't think so. I mean, I think there's way too many fanboys of uh, PlayStation to let that happen. I think it'll do good in the U.S. I think it'll be pretty much neck and neck, Microsoft and uh, Sony. Because Sony's not stupid. I think what they'll do is they'll have this high price. They're going to sell out, right? I mean, they're going to sell out because there's so many fanboys and it's going to be limited. It's going to be just like the 360. It's going to be eBay all over again. It's going to be, you know, whatever. So as soon as they sell that, then I think they're going to replenish that stock and lower the price. Now, here's the thing I don't know, is when I look at it, like, even now, like, that, you know, they can say they're going to sell it the first batch, cool. But how many people who are waiting for the PS3 maybe have changed their mind now after they heard the prices and went out and bought a 360? Yeah, that could be That's the thing I'm kind of wondering, but time will tell. I know I went to Target today, and there was only one 360 left, and uh, they had, like, seven the other day. So it, it sounds like they're selling pretty good still. Yeah. So, what else on Microsoft? They announced Live Anywhere, which uh, I guess is a cool thing. And it's this whole thing where uh, apparently your PC and your 360 and even your cell phone can all kind of work on the same game, which is kind of weird. Like, they showed a demo of uh, Forza 2 where uh, he was on his PC doing, like, a modeling of the car, you know, developing what the car was like, and then he sent it to somebody via the cell phone, and the dude on the cell phone took the car (laughs) and played it in the game on the 360 that night. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. The other thing that they were talking about is the fact that a lot of games that are coming out are going to run on both platforms. Both PC and 360? Yeah, and you can play against people that are on the PC, even though you're playing on 360. So I think that's really cool. And then we'll find once and for all if uh, mouse and keyboard is is better than the uh, <laughs> controller. Cause, uh, it is. It is. 
Well, we'll see, Woody. I'll play it. <laughs> so one of the first games is uh, Shadowrun, which, again, I, I heard wasn't too great. People weren't too uh, high on it. but uh, Well, Chris, do you remember the Shadowrun that was way back when? I think it might have been on the Sega Genesis. Yeah, that, I love Shadowrun. That was a great game, and, it, and it, was a, it was a really different RPG, and it's based on a sort of pen-and-paper RPG. Yeah. Uh, it, and it combines like a cyberpunk world with uh, elves and, and you know different fantasy races and magic. So it's really got a cool sort of feel to it. But I was disappointed to hear that the Shadowrun game that we're talking about, the new one, is really, it sounds like it's not even an RPG. It sounds like it's more of a shooter. Yeah, I heard it's more of a, a first-person type shooter. So, so I don't understand that. I mean, you take one of the most uh, cool RPGs and turn it into a shooter. I'm not sure why they would do that. I don't know, man. It's it's it'll be interesting. Maybe maybe shooters are all the rage. So anything else on Microsoft that you guys uh, want to talk about? How, how do you think the 360 is going to do? I guess that's the question. Well, the 360 is out. I don't know. I mean, it's doing. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, it's selling out now. Pretty much everywhere it's at. So I guess sky's the limit. For and the Halo 3, when that comes out, could really be oh, yeah. another big. I guess driver we forgot for about it. Halo 3. See, when I watched a press conference, uh, you know, like they at the end they showed Halo 3, and it was really just this uh, video. So I'm not sure why everybody's so hyped up about it you know it's like we knew it was coming yeah we saw a video but uh i didn't see right wasn't it a cutscene? yeah yeah just a bunch of video so uh, yeah those things drive me nuts i need i just (laughs) want to see gameplay all those videos it's just like oh yeah i could go home and make that on the computer and i have no talent you could like i want to see that he's gonna come up with a twitch asylum full motion video trailer (laughs) yeah but for me the question is is the gameplay really gonna be new or is it just gonna be halo running on the 360 I don't know. If it was just Halo running on 360, I'd sign up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it'll still be a great game, but it was, we don't know how, how it's going to be any different from Halo 2. I mean, Halo 2 was a great game, but how is, just seeing that video cutscene doesn't show us anything. Okay, so on to Nintendo. Nintendo Wii? Wii, yeah. yeah. You're in the game? Wii in the game. <laughs> I mean, I was skeptical of, of Nintendo and Wii and the controller, and I was basically skeptical of everything, but from now my feeling looking back at what I've heard about E3 is that Nintendo seems to have a lot of the right ideas about, you know, it is about doing something different. It is about making something brand new, and uh, I'm more excited now about the Nintendo console than I was before. The Wii uh, Sports was something they talked about. They showed the uh, tennis that looked pretty cool. They had a guy come up on stage and play tennis with uh, Miyamoto. Which does that guy ever not smile? Is that like <laughs> I, I'm like, why? Hey, he's got a great, great life. Why yeah, not? I guess so. But uh, so that looked pretty cool. You know, I think it's really cool that they're doing this, and I think it does. You know, like one thing that I, I equated to is, uh, you know, we bought the the flashback too. Yeah. My parents came over. Friends came over. We all play on the flashback too because they can pick it up and play it. And I kind of equate that to what's going to happen with the Wii. Because I think it'll be great to get other people playing with you while playing with your console. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, people who might not be hardcore gamers can just pick it up and go. That's one of the things you talked about. It's so much easier to pick up that than learning all the button uh, layouts on all the new, the the last generation of controllers. Which is great. I think it's going to be good for that. But my question is, you know, there's times when I like to play the kind of hardcore game and really get into it. Is the Wii going to allow that? That's my real question. Because I like to play the flashback, too. Like when there's people around and stuff, but I, I really don't sit around and play the play the flashback two that much by myself, you know. So like sometimes I want to kick back and play this long type adventure type game, 
Are you going to have those kind of things? You know, I mean, you're going to have Zelda, obviously. Yeah, Zelda is going to be there. But is there going to be other like first-person type shooters, third-person shooters on it that really work? Well, there was some talk about using the controller to do sword fighting games and stuff like that. Well, that's Red Steel. And uh, from everything I heard, Red Steel looked and played like ass. That's what what I heard. (laughs) So my question is, is it... And you know, the other thing about it, here's a question I had, and this is something they brought up on the 1UP show. And I, I hadn't really thought about it, but it's totally true. So they're saying that graphics-wise, it's maybe not going to be even that much better than the GameCube, right? So mm-hmm. why isn't this just a peripheral? Oh, you mean why not just have the new controller and make it available for GameCube? Yeah. Well, I heard that's what they wanted to do originally, and they discovered that their old GameCube processor wasn't quite up to being able to handle the physics and stuff that this new controller did, which is why they had to have the new console. At least that's, that's a what great I theory, but the reality is... <laughs> Here's, here's what I heard the reality That was the spin. I here's heard. what I heard the reality is. The reality is that none of the game producers were going to produce stuff for it because nobody they, they're not sure people are going to go buy this peripheral. So if you sell a new console, everybody oh, it has comes, it. And it comes with it. Then yeah. everybody's yeah. got it. So yeah. you're, you're essentially nice. buying a new system. In order for, to get that controller. To get the controller. And make sure everyone has it. Yeah, exactly. So that's Interesting, kind of, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of crazy, but, but maybe that's true, right? Because the graphics aren't that much better. Uh, the whole processor thing, I don't buy, Woody. I'm sorry, but it's a great theory. <laughs> that was the spin. I heard it. I didn't, I didn't invent that. I'm not that creative. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the games. Zelda the Twilight Princess. What do you guys think of that? Um, I like Zelda. When I saw some of the little videos of this, and I saw Link, and I saw you know the graphics, it, it made me want to play it. I mean, did it look super fantastic graphically? Mm, I don't know. It, it looked okay. But just the fact that it was Zelda, I thought was cool. And the idea of using the new controller and maybe using Zelda in a different way, it sounded good. So here's my take on this, because uh, I'm always Mr. Uh, like Devil's Advocate. i to look at the other side. From what I heard, uh, it's basically Zelda for the GameCube with using the controller, right? <laughs> so from, from what I've heard, it's really hard to use the controller with Zelda. And the majority of people who played it, the E3 said that they would rather play it on the GameCube because it just was really hard to control, like doing the bow and stuff. And it was kind of like, let's tack this on. Let's make it use a new controller. Let's get people to buy the Wii. But it didn't really feel like from the ground up they thought this is how it should be done. And it maybe doesn't work that well. Again, maybe mm-hmm. it works well for Wii Sports, but maybe it doesn't work well for these third-person type games. Maybe it doesn't work well for Zelda. Maybe that's something over time like the DS people will tune themselves to developing for. But right now it just doesn't seem like it's there. Hmm. So the other game that they talked quite a bit about was Mario Galaxy. Now that looks pretty cool. That does look cool. You know, it reminded me of uh, it reminded me of like a 3D Sonic the Hedgehog game, or uh, or even Crash Bandicoot or one of those where uh, you have that sort of wacky perspective, crazy 3D running around and and stuff. It looked pretty cool. Yeah. Again, I heard that it didn't really work real well with the controller, so <laughs> that that kind of sucks. If that's the case, I mean, again, a lot of that stuff, maybe the sensitivity and stuff, can be tweaked. But um, from what I heard right now, and I don't know, like I listened to a lot of other podcasts, and people that were there were saying um, that it was maybe a little bit too sensitive. Like uh, Alon from Chatterbox Video Game Radio. I don't know if you guys ever listened to that podcast. It's pretty good though. He was there, and he said uh, he thought it was way too sensitive. And it didn't really play well with Mario Galaxy. And he felt like he was kind of uh, told it was going to be this great thing. And he didn't. And he's almost a Nintendo fanboy. And he didn't think it lived up to the hype. So, huh. 
So I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm definitely going to buy it, but you know, at the same time, I'm a little reluctant to believe it's going to be as good. I think people want to believe it's going to be as good as Nintendo is saying. Well, that's my thing. Is that yeah, it may be a disappointment, but it's interested me interested me enough that I haven't owned a piece of Nintendo hardware since the original NES. But I'm going to go buy this console just because the uh, potential for new gameplay types seems phenomenal. So yeah, it may it may all be terrible, but I'm interested enough. I'm going to give it a shot. So what about Excite Truck? What do you think of that? <laughs> I didn't see that one. All right. So yes, essentially, uh, Excite, remember Excite Bike? Yeah, Excite Bike. Oh, yeah. Well. All right, so there's Excite Truck, and apparently you lay the controller like horizontally, and you use it to move the truck. You know, again, hmm. it's kind of... Yeah, I did. <laughs> Try, trying a little hard. I'm trying a little hard with that controller. Metroid yeah. Prime 3 looked pretty good, though. Yeah, that, that looked good. And then again, uh, Red Steel uh, looked like ass, is what I heard. Ass was the term used over and over to describe it. So, and it played like ass. Like what I heard is that you have to take the sword and like you have to put it in a diagonal direction, exactly diagonal, to get it to chop. It doesn't really follow your movement, right? So we right. heard that it's going to really follow your movement and it's all the spatial stuff. And I hear that like for at least certain games, it doesn't live up to that hype, right? Mm, that's too bad. Yeah, and again, I've heard it's too sensitive. So. So what about the price? Did you guys hear a price announced? No, I didn't. So that that kind of worries me a bit because I've heard one ninety nine, and then I heard recently two forty nine. What do you think is a price that you would buy a Wii at? Two forty nine still sounds great compared to what Sony's price is. Compared to five ninety nine, all of a sudden two forty nine sounds cheap. But not a, not bad at all. I know. To me, one ninety nine seems like the right price for this console. Yeah, I think that's true. I think one ninety nine it would be a no brainer to because buy because I think that's what parents are going to look at one ninety nine. For some reason, once you get above that two hundred dollar mark, they think yeah, that's that's a big big expense. But one ninety nine, I think, would be the the price that they would probably do pretty well at. Two forty nine to me, I mean, I really I want it, but two forty nine is a lot of money. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. Like, would I go out and buy it day one? I might at 199. I think I probably would, but 249. I'm not too sure. So they talked a lot about DS as well, and I think that's a real winner. You know, it, DS it is seems to be blowing up. I mean, there's so many games for the DS. DS is amazing. Yeah. So I can't wait for the DS Lite. It's not not too long now. I'm gonna be able to pick one up. Well, they'll be on sale. I don't know if we'll be able to find <laughs> one, but uh, yeah, but they're out pretty soon. So, so let's. After all of E3, who is the real winner is the question. What do you guys think? I'd, it's hard to say, but I think despite some of the things that we've been saying about maybe problems with the controller, I think Nintendo's probably the winner. I think Nintendo had a lot of buzz. Yeah, again, there may be issues. Um, but so, but I, I don't know for sure they're the winner yet. They definitely had more buzz than people were expecting. I, 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 I would say the real loser was Sony, though. Yeah, I think I undoubtedly think the loser was Sony, but I, I got to give the you know it's I think it's neck and neck Nintendo and Microsoft because like I say you know all these third person shooters, first person shooters, all these kind of hardcore games I don't see those showing up on Nintendo, so I'm not sure how they can be the winner, uh, you know, undisputed when there's a lot of people that are not going to play Wii Sports. You know, they might play it for a little bit, but they're going to want something that's more hardcore after a while. Yeah, so good I, point. So good I think point. it really is a combination Microsoft slash Nintendo win. I guess if it was a question of 
would I give up my Xbox 360 and have the Wii be my only console? I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you want this kind of hardcore gaming experience sometimes. And a lot of people do. I mean, those that's the majority of gamers right now, right? Yeah. Nintendo's trying to break out this new market, and I, I applaud them for that. I think that's cool. But like a lot of the core gamers are going to play Wii Sports and go, okay, now I really want to play something more hardcore, and it's, it's not going to be there, at least not initially. So, All right. Well, I think we've kind of uh, talked E3... Uh, enough so uh on to the next segment which is what we're currently playing well me i have not been playing that much we're gonna take a, a quick break and then we're gonna oh, come okay. back with what we're, we're gonna take playing. a break first <laughs> tom just like to talk and talk and talk and <laughs> that's talk. right never ends never shut up We're going to talk now about what we're currently playing. What are you playing, Tom? Well, I haven't been playing quite as much, because with this weather, if I have a choice between, like, if I'm going to play some driving game on the console, or if I'm going to go out and dr- ride my motorcycle in real life, I'm going to go ride in real life, you know, especially with nice and sunny, and, you know, this is a perfect time to be in the outdoors in Oregon, so that's what I've been doing. See, I disagree. I avoid sunlight at all costs, all times of year. <laughs> um, but yeah. I have played a couple of <laughs> That means games. Woody's been playing a lot of games, I yeah. bet. <laughs> I've been playing not a three. <laughs> what, what's your high score on not a? <laughs> no, actually, I've been moving for the last month. So the only game satisfaction I've had is watching E3 on G4. So That's not been, much satisfaction. No, it's not no. much at all. Okay, well, I have played a few things, though, because... Oh, you're not done. I thought Tom no, was no. done. No, no, no. I was going to tell us, yeah, I've been riding my motorcycle. I've been playing anything. I've played a few things. Okay. And the reason is I, I am still on Gamefly, so I've gotten a couple of things that just as rentals. And so I got this game called Gallop Racer, which is a horse racing game. That makes sense. And Gallop. You know, I thought it would be fun. thought, like, we'll jump in, have a race. Well, this game is so complex. It's like you get... I thought you could just, like, turn it on, fire it up, be in a horse race... But no, it's like, what color shoes do you want? What color uniform do you want? Which of these thousand horses do you want? Do you want to breed horses? I mean, it just goes on forever. So it, did you breed horses, Tom? No, I didn't. I tried to skip that part. And I at least figured out eventually how to get to actually have a race and be the jockey and have a race. And then I realized that even that part is so hard to learn because it's like this very complex simulation of the horse and its fatigue <laughs> levels and and if you go too fast the horse tires out and it's just impossible i could not get into it at all and so like i had that for about a day and then i returned it since it was a rental and i tried a game called beat mania <laughs> <laughs> And Beat Mania is a game, it's another rhythm game, it's like Dance Dance Revolution or something, but you're a DJ, and it's got this special controller that has like a little turntable and keyboard, but of course I don't have the controller, so, you know, I was trying to play it with the normal PS2 controller, and it's just about impossible to play like that, so that's another one where it's just like, I gave up on that real quick, so... I I like your notes, Tom, they make me laugh. (laughs) <laughs> so that leaves uh, I did have a game called Tourist Trophy Which is a motorcycle racing game on PS2 And that was really fun I kept that for quite a while Played it um, The nice thing about that game is It has this play mechanic where If you 
want to get a new motorcycle, you have to win a certain race to get that motorcycle. So it's not like the other games where you save up money. Like, you know how on uh, a lot of the driving games, when you win a race, you get money, and eventually you can buy a new car. Well, it's not like that. You have to actually win the race. Buy a new race. car in the motorcycle game? No, in the other driving oh, okay, games. Sorry. Like in Project Gotham Racing, right? You win yeah. a bunch of races, you, you build up your money, and you buy a new car. In this game, it's not a question of building up money. You have to win the race. So that means that, in theory, if you were good enough, you could go and win the race and get the very best bike right away. It's just that that race is hard to win. But it also means that you can't just grind up the money. You know, like in some of those games, you just grind. Like, you, you do the race over and over, and you keep coming in fourth, but it gets you some money, and eventually you can still buy the best right, car. Yeah. And in this game, there's no way to do that. You either have the skill to win the race, or you don't. And if you, if you don't, you're not going to get that sweet bike. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun. Tourist Trophy? Yeah, Tourist Trophy on PS2. And I had a conversation with uh, my coworker Brady about this because we both ride motorcycles in real life. You can't drop names. We haven't got permission. (laughs) Okay, my coworker, beep, (laughs) about this. Because we both ride motorcycles. And I guess he and his friend were down on the game because it's a little bit not realistic enough. Like, you can slam on the brakes in certain situations that in real life would make you crash. And you can do it in the game and not crash. And he was wanting it to be a really true simulation, like everything completely realistic. And I can see why they didn't do that, though, because motorcycle racing in real life is really, really hard. And if it was in a completely accurate simulation, almost nobody would be able to do it. And it would be a really frustrating game. So I would have liked it maybe if that was an option, if you could turn on you know, simulation physics or something. Versus but, like arcade or something <clears> like that. I mean, it's not a it's not a completely unrealistic game either. It's it's pretty realistic, but there's just a few things about how the brakes work where you can get away with stuff that would probably really make you crash. So, what about you, Chris? What are you playing? Oh, I was just looking at your notes. You said Tomb Raider too, but uh, oh yeah, Tomb Raider. I haven't played it in a little while though. All right, cool. But Tomb Raider on the 360 is definitely fun. All right, so uh, so I played Tomb Raider as well. Um, I played it for about ten minutes and I shut it off. Why is that? I don't know. I started playing it. I just I couldn't get into it. I'm like, I don't want to play another, you know, long game. And I just, I didn't, I mean, not that it's a long game. Actually, it's kind of short, right? But um, I don't know. I just couldn't get into the whole Laura Croft again. I just, it wasn't, huh. it, it wasn't really appealing to me. It seemed like just like any other type of adventure type running and jumping type game, <laughs> right? I don't, I didn't see any difference, you know? Um so I've been playing a lot of the demos, the E3 demos, uh, Lost Planet, top yeah. of the list. Yeah, we me. just checked that out earlier. See, now, when I look earlier. at something mm-hmm. like Lost Planet versus Tomb Raider, I'm instantly into Lost Planet. I could see playing that game all the way through. Because you know, right from the beginning, when you turn that corner and that thing jumps out of the ground, I'm like totally into it. And the fact that there's this mech portion that you can jump in and the explosions look good, it just feels tight. The controls are good. I don't know. It looks like a great game to me, and I just didn't get that feeling from playing Tomb Raider. I felt like Tomb Raider would be more of a job. You know, I could finish it, but I don't really want to finish it. You know what I mean? So, uh, so what'd you guys think of the Lost Planet demo, Woody? I, I know you hadn't seen it before. No, I enjoyed it a lot. That, that actually excited, exciting game. Seems like well, it's very fast paced, and yeah. there's a lot going on all the time. I so I think that might be why it it's it better my, for you than Tomb my Raider. ADD. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I certainly like the visuals, the snow effects, the uh, the explosion and smoke effects are just great. It has this sort of weird gameplay where it's really cold on the planet, and I guess you're always sort of freezing. Yeah, you're and so always you have freezing. to you have to collect up 
you know, renew your heat or something. Yeah. That's the way it works. It's an interesting game. So it means you're sort of always losing health. Even right. if you just stand there doing nothing, you're losing health. Right. And you have to collect the heat packs or whatever they are. Um, it was cool. I definitely liked it. It was, it was a game that I would uh, rent, maybe even buy. The cool thing about it, too, I thought was that um, there's a lot of different modes, even in the demo. You, you fight against the aliens, and then you fight in the other demo against uh, ice pirates, other human-type people, which I thought was cool. You and know, you can hop in mechs. <clears throat> Right, you can hop in mechs. And there's also this Bionic Commando-esque-ness to the guy, which I don't know if you guys saw that. You know, Capcom made Bionic Commando, right? Well, this guy, and they're the ones that are making Lost Planet, he also has this ability to shoot out a thing and climb stuff with it. The grappling hook. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was kind of a retro flashback (laughs) that maybe not too many people would have picked up on, but uh, I thought it was pretty cool. So I've been playing that. I finished the demo. It, It is kind of a challenging demo, but once you get used to it, it's not too bad. Been playing the Test Drive Unlimited demo. Have you taken a look at that, Tom? No, not yet. So what's kind of cool about that is you can be driving around on... It's in Hawaii. You're driving around in a lot of these other cars that are driving around. could be other players. And at any time, you could just say, challenge them to a match. So kind of the whole, cool. like... Um, what do they call that? Where you go and you see all the other people. Like, you go to that board when you first enter a game, kind of to find other people to play with, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. The takes, meeting room. The meeting right. room takes place in the game. In the game. So it's so just, just out in the world. And yeah, so you could be driving around. There's some dude, like, pulled over at the gas station. You can go up and say, uh, do you want to do you want to race? So I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. The, gra- the graphics, like, some people say they're great, but when I compare them to, like, PGR, I'm like, man, these don't look that good compared to PGR. <laughs> but I also got my car stuck a couple times. Uh, I couldn't get out and had to shut off the game and restart. It has a timer in the game, so you can only play it for a certain amount of time before it like resets your position and stuff. But hmm. so it's a good demo. I think I think there's some hope. It's not going to be anything earth shattering, but it's it's not a bad game. So in the demo, can you challenge other players like that? Yeah, yeah, you can totally cool. go around and see them and uh, challenge them. That sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, also, I played the Moto GP demo, Tom. Which oh. I know you've been even. I've been craving that game. I haven't played the demo yet, though. You must have been outside riding your real bike. I was out riding my real motorcycle, yeah. <laughs> so I played that. You know, i got to say, a uh, d- bit disappointed. I'm not real happy with it. Uh, disappointed how? Disappointed in that I didn't like it, Tom. <laughs> well, what was wrong with it, though? I mean... <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, i, I got to say, like, I'm not a graphics whore or anything, but... like, look <laughs> graphics at, whore? Haven't you heard of that term? <laughs> Never heard that term? I guess I've heard it. I haven't heard you say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm not exactly uh, that into graphics, Tom. So, uh, but normally uh, I'm not. And uh, on this game, I felt like we were kind of shown these really cool screenshots, and, and it didn't live up to the hype. The screenshots were really fantastic. Yeah, and they so. were the guy who drew them did an excellent job. <laughs> Unfortunately, they didn't translate to the real game. The graphics pretty much suck. Oh, that's but, too bad. But I gotta say, I, I did play this demo for quite a bit, and the reason was that it's multiplayer. Which is very cool. I think all, you know, if they have multiplayer play, the demo should have multiplayer. Because it's able yeah. to jump right in and play against people. And, you know, it's just like playing. I'm like, why why, why, why do I even want to buy the game? I mean, what's the point? I can sit here and play people all day long on Xbox <laughs> Live and I'm having a blast. So Maybe you know. the real game has better graphics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the end, you know, like when you exit the demo, it's like, game comes with way better graphics. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking not. They'd probably want to show you those up front. But, huh. uh, so and I also played last night. I played the World Cup, uh, EA for the uh, the soccer the game for three Germany World Cup soccer. Yeah. Did, yeah. You, did you play that? No. What have you been doing, Tom? 
I've been outside. Okay, that's right. You've been <laughs> no, uh, that game is is pretty good too. It's a I thought it was a pretty big improvement over last year's. Well, the last version for the 360. Though. That's one I'd like to see. I actually saw that in a store today. Really? And uh, sort of picked it up, and then I thought, no, I have Gamefly. I should rent it Which, first. Was it the World Cup one? Cause yeah, it was, it, was like, the, it was the Germany one. Dude, it looks good. Not the road to the I World think, Cup, I but think, the World Cup. I think yeah. it looks good. I'm pre- I mean, I'm not a big soccer game player, but... But you noticed the difference between that and the yeah, road to the yeah, World Cup? Yeah, I thought it looked better. I mean, we'll play it after the podcast. You can tell me what you think, but okay. uh, but it's yeah, I'll beat you, because <laughs> I've been playing a little bit. But uh, but I thought it was pretty good. So uh, so what else have I been doing? Uh, okay, so here's here's the deal. Since our last podcast, which was, uh, what was that, a year ago? Yeah, that was about a year ago today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of got on this kick, and I guess it had to do with, uh, I listen, it's just weird, dude. I listen to podcasts, I was listening to Twit, and they had the whole Apple flashback thing, right? Yeah. Or they were talking about the Apple 30th anniversary, which we're going to talk quite a bit about in the retro segment. And I was like, man, Apple, dude, that was cool. I got to get one of those. So I started looking on eBay, uh, found an Apple II, purchased the Apple II, and then I was like... Got this room. I talked to my wife. There was a bit of negotiation that, that took place there. I don't want to get into it, but um, but I was able to uh, to obtain a section of our room that I was able to put old computers on. All right. So uh, so I got an Apple II. I got a Commodore sixty four. I got an Atari ST, and I got an Amiga. <laughs> you got an Amiga too? Yeah, I got an Amiga. All right. No, an Amiga one. But uh, it was <laughs> an Amiga one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't have those. I have the Atari ST actually at work. If you can believe it or not, but uh, we're playing. Are you it using it for development? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We're playing some games on it. You know, it's, it's pretty fun. But here I have the Commodore and I have the uh, Apple II, and I also have my SNES, my Dreamcast, and my PlayStation all hooked up to it. And what's nice is I can play any game I want anytime. I don't have to deal with hooking them up to the TV or anything because I put a switch box. So I got all those systems kind of set up in that room. So I've been having a blast messing with those. So at the uh, at work on the Atari ST, some of the games have been playing. I just wrote a list down. Empire Strikes Back, the arcade game. Did you guys ever play that in the Atari ST? Probably not. But uh, the game is identical to the arcade game. It looks awesome. And it's a blast <laughs> to play. Been playing a game called Star Glider. Do you remember that one, Tom? Yeah, I do remember Do you that really game. remember that game? Yeah. It's a... Because it had the music at the beginning. That mm-hmm. It sang a song, Star Glider, by Rainbird. Blah, blah, blah. It actually had a <laughs> band playing and stuff. It's a great game. It's almost it's kind of like Empire Strikes Back. It's like this uh, vector-looking game. Yeah, it's a vector kind of funny flying, flying thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's a pretty fun game. I've been playing Rick Dangerous, another game. I don't know. If, not many people here probably remember it, but uh, it's a cool game. Defender of the Crown. Oh, yeah. The Defender Atari of the Crown. ST. You know, I have such great memories of Defender of the Crown, but when I play it, dude, the game is very slow. Like, I'm, I'm, I go, I'm gonna joust, and it yeah, takes like the jousting. Like, it takes like ten minutes to load up the joust. I'm like, people are worried about PSP load times. Look at this, dude. Like, <laughs> I want to joust, okay? And then it's like it even pauses in the middle when I'm going down the thing to like joust with the guy because I had to load the next portion. So I'm like, man. And then you shoot arrows, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different mini games in that. Yeah. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's very cool. Uh, on my SNES at home, I've been playing Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Do you remember that one? No. Amy's little brother and I have been playing that. It's a cool <laughs> game. You run around shooting uh, those. And on the Dreamcast, I've been playing Ikaruga, which uh, is a shooter, Japanese shooter, which is an awesome game. If you guys haven't, if you, any of you guys have a Dreamcast and don't have Ikaruga, go get it. It's an awesome shooter game. It's a blast. And, of course, on the Apple II, I've been playing uh, some of my favorite games, a Championship Load Runner. 
Load Runner, greatest game of all time. Been playing Zork. Zork is great. Zork is one of the classic text adventures, and you know what Zork reminds me of is when I was in high school. Uh, there were some guys who I would go and talk to about Zork, and we'd exchange strategies and try to figure the game out. And uh, it was just a great bonding experience to talk about Zork and play Z- playing Zork on the Apple II. Yeah, and I'll, I want to talk about that more when we get to the Apple II retro section. So I'll save the rest of my Apple II for there. The other thing that I'm doing is uh, reading the book Hackers: Heroes of the Computer Revolution by Stephen Levy. Which uh, my buddy Ron, uh, I guess I'm not supposed to name drop, but your buddy beep beep, yeah, he uh, he loaned to me, and it's a great book. If you guys are into anything retro and you're interested in like the past and the computers that were like uh, back in the day and the hardware hackers and the the early game hackers and all that kind of stuff, and hackers isn't in the sense of like hacking systems. It's like the people that initially did the work. Um, you should pick up that book. It's a great book. Um, I know you read it, Woody. What did you think of it? I, it, I thought it was incredible, and it, one of my favorites of all time. I've read it a few times. Um, it basically covers the history of nerddom um, back to the, <laughs> Nerd, the creation to of nerddom. Yes, yes. <laughs> is, that, is that a Woody term, or is that a is that more white? I than think that? that's a, in the Oxford English Dictionary. I think um, <laughs> no. I it, it's a great book. Good stories. Good times. Read it. And the other thing, uh, before we close out this section, that i got to give some props is to uh, Teal and Zilch. Uh, they're two of our listeners who uh, I have on my friends list. And i got to say, I got my ass kicked by Teal on uh, Geometry Wars. On Geometry Wars, yes. He's he got 1.7 million. million. You that asshole, That is impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, i got to get back on the old Geometry Wars kick. I have inspiration now. I'm going to get you, Teal. Uh, you may think you're the big man now, <laughs> but just wait. I'm going to top 2 million. Uh, and Zilch is is right on my. Uh, he's he's coming right up on me. He's got one million. So uh, congrats to you guys. But wait a minute, Chris. Didn't you say you're going to top two million back in episode two or something like that? Uh, but, <laughs> but he was trying so hard to play the other new games. Now, oh, yes, right. yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. Uh, I, I've uh, yes, uh, yeah, whatever. So uh, <laughs> so I'm going to top two million. <laughs> All right. So on to the news, I guess. Yeah, let's do the news. All right. Why don't you start it, Tom? Okay, the Xbox 360. Tom, again, we're going to take a break. I was just messing with you, dude. All right. On to the news. Take it away, Tom, or I'll take it away. All right, here we go. Go ahead. So uh, the Xbox 360 got hacked recently. And who's surprised by that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe nobody. But I thought it was interesting because Microsoft put a lot of effort this time to stop the console from being hacked after what happened with the Xbox. So they talked about this is going to be really secure. And so far, you know, the whole, like, TSOP and the and the onboard thing, the way it was hacked last time, hasn't occurred. But they found a weakness, I guess, in the... uh, DVD, and uh, not that we promote this. In fact, uh, it's not obviously copying games is not a good thing for the industry. But uh, we added it to the news because we thought it was it's pretty interesting uh, how they did it. Uh, essentially, what they've done is they've found that on the Samsung drives that they're able to hack the firmware on the Samsung drive and rewrite to the firmware using hooking up to a PC essentially, and then it uh, bypasses once they they patch an ISO image of the game that they can bypass the copy protection. Hmm. So it's crazy. 
And uh, a couple other related hacks that they've done with it is they've uh, a couple people have come out with uh, tutorials on how to switch on and off that firmware. So uh, the I guess the issue was last time if you hacked your Xbox and you went on to Xbox Live, you'd get immediately banned. So I guess they're thinking that if they have a switch and they can turn on and off this this firmware on the DVD drive, that it'll uh, allow them to go on Xbox Live, you know, by turning it off and playing backups if they if they have you know switched on to the uh, to the hacked one. What do you guys think about that philosophy that they're going to ban you on live? Do you think that's going to occur? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think they could. I mean, but for me, I really have no interest in hacking my Xbox 360. No, me neither. You know, I mean, why would I bother? It's no, not not I, worth it. Like I'm saying, I don't think we we obviously don't promote this uh, type of behavior. But the thing is, it's just kind of interesting because, like, wh- how is Microsoft going to respond to this? That's what I find most interesting about it. And so people think, okay, they're going to ban me from Xbox Live. But it's like if you hack your system and they, you know, you download these updates that always come down, right? Couldn't they just have the update change the system so when you turn it on, if it ever saw that type of firmware, that it just won't even start? I mean... Now you're giving Microsoft ideas. No, but seriously, though. <laughs> no, they could, I think yeah. it's going to be way worse than banning you on Xbox Live. I think that they could just make it not even work anymore if they ever sense that hacked firmware. So, you know... And so, I mean... You mean they're going to send down the death code or something? It's going to just like completely ruin your 360? Is that what you're saying? So here's the deal. I guess here's what, I, here's what I'm saying. Is people say like, okay, well, if I, if I put this hacked firmware on, I'm cool as long as I turn it off when I go on Xbox Live. Well, Microsoft could have it download something that if you ever booted with that hacked firmware, now it's got something on the system to look for even when you're not on Xbox Live. Yeah, they could. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So they could totally put that kind of thing in place. So if anybody out there even attempts this, I think it's kind of very scary because I think they can do major damage to your console. And uh, I don't know if they're going to... But again, why wouldn't they have done that with the last Xbox? That's my question. I mean, yeah, theoretically that sounds like something that they could do, but did they do it for the last one? I don't think they did. So, would they do it for this one? Who knows? But yeah, the whole thing's a losing proposition. Well, both for the fact that Microsoft thinks they'll never they'll make it uncrackable, and for the people who are trying to crack it. I mean, what what does that really give you? But the fact that they say that it's uncrackable is exactly why people try to crack well, it. Well, right, right. <laughs> that was their first mistake. So I, I, I even heard that Sony might. I, this is a not related to this, but uh, but Sony, I guess they announced that. Or somebody heard that they might allow for homebrew on the PS3. <laughs> Have you that, heard that? I did hear that, and that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, because yeah. I heard they're shipping with a full Linux system on every on every copy, so that people could do homebrew right out of the box. I don't know if that's what they're saying, but uh, that would be interesting. But uh, but yeah, I heard that there might be some ability to do homebrew on it, which to me is kind of like, well, we kind of blew it at the show. So now we're going to allow people to hold right. on it. There's something that we can do that nobody else is doing. Right. These know. are all rumors. But, yeah, it does sound like they're making more uh, hints in that direction. But if they're going to do that, are they going to start encouraging homebrew on the PSP? <laughs> you would hope, but I don't think so. Dude. I mean, that's where the homebrew really is nice is on the PSP. <laughs> Probably Since if they, they get... got no other games, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Probably if they get desperate enough, they might turn around. But yeah. we'll have to see. All right. So what's the next news story? Well, this is the Sony news story from... Uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but it's this is from 1up.com, and Sony Computer Entertainment Europe CEO David Reeves admits that key launch titles will slip to 2007. Great. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, nice. that's encouraging. But nice. then he also says, 
quote, We have built up a certain brand equity over time since the launch of PlayStation in 1995 and PS2 in 2000, and the first five million are going to buy it, whatever it is, even if it didn't have games. <laughs> Unquote. And this is the quote I mentioned earlier. It just seems such like such a stupid thing to say. I mean, even if that's true, even if people are going to go out and buy it no matter what because it's the Sony PS3, it just seems like a slap in the face to the consumer to say, yeah, we think you're stupid and you're going to buy it even if there's no games. Right, because I do think it's true, but it's the same thing as Microsoft saying Microsoft saying their system's uncrackable. By going out and saying that, you're challenging those people to prove you're wrong. So all those people who would have gone out and bought it first thing, they may be saying, well, maybe I will just wait and see what happens. Because it really, it, it grates on your nerves. It really maybe I'll just me. wait for the Wii. Yeah, I was a big fan of Sony, but that kind of attitude really bothers me. Yeah, he also said during the same interview that uh, Heavenly Sword, Motorstorm, and Formula One will all see release in early 2007 within the PS3, quote, launch window. So, so now words, there's not a launch date, there's a launch window? There's a launch w- How big is a window? That's what I want to know. It could be big. It could be a year. Right? <laughs> I don't know. What's a launch window? So that's kind of scary to me. Uh, and I just don't like the arrogance. He's like, it doesn't really matter what we ship at launch. It's like, yeah, really? I don't like it either. I think it's stupid. I, I don't really understand Sony. I, it's like they've gotten way too cocky, and I think it's going to come back and bite them. Well, they did so well beating the original Xbox that they have become become copy, cocky. Excuse me. But <laughs> one thing copy. Microsoft does well <laughs> is learn from their failures or learn from their mistakes. And with the Xbox 360, they're doing a great job. Maybe not in Japan, but over here, and I think that Sony is in for a rude awakening, at least in terms of sales over in the U.S. That kind of leads into our next uh, news story, which is Xbox Live hit 24 million downloads. And this is from Eurogamer, and I guess it got re-put on uh, Slashdot as well. And it says, uh, thanks to the E3 at Home initiative, Xbox Live has served up 24 million pieces of content and connected 1.5 million gamers uh, from the article, they're quoted as saying, over 600 terabytes of data were transferred over the network during a single week, a figure which represents 30 times more data that found in all printed material in the U.S. Library of Congress. <laughs> According to Microsoft Games uh, boss Peter Moore, who thankfully did not go on to provide the standard British comparison of telling us how many double-decker buses it equates to. Well, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's a lot of downloads. So apparently uh, Xbox Live is, is doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it's a strange comparison to say, you know, how much data is compared to the Library of Congress, because a lot of this data is probably videos and trailers and yeah. and the same thing over and over and over, which, you know, the Library of Congress doesn't have the same book in there a hundred million times. So, um, and also, 1.5 million gamers sounds like a lot, but compared to the population of the U.S., it's not that m- many people, and they're probably counting uh, overseas users too, right? Yeah, but that's over a week. Over a week, 1.5 million. Yeah. That's pretty good, I would say. Well, and it's also interesting to me, at least doing a little math, that means that on average, those 1.5 million people each downloaded about 16 different pieces of content. I mean, that's a lot of downloading. <laughs> you know, just each person doing. I don't that's know. That's true. Okay, so this, this brings up another point, which we didn't touch on earlier when we talked about E3. And, you know, Sony's online. They're saying it's going to be free and it's going to be all these great things. But what do we really see of it at E3? Yes. Good point, Chris. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't a whole lot said. There was a couple of screenshots. You know, they showed a little marketplace. It's going to be free. And I hear it's, it's probably not going to be free. 
Um, it's going to be like the silver gold of Xbox Live, but uh, but I think Sony's got an uphill battle there. You know, if they're going to do what what Microsoft's kind of established and just you know just the scalability to support that much downloading and all this kind of stuff is going to be a problem for them. I think. Well, really, the Xbox Live is what I've seen is what has disappointed me that Sony has not had the equivalent, and I've really thought that the Xbox Live is Microsoft's ace in the hole. That's how they're going to beat Sony long term. So I'm glad to see that Sony might finally be addressing it. But again, like you said, what do we actually see of it? It's all just talk at this point. It's yeah. all a bunch of just a bunch of vaporware. I mean, we might see the Phantom console before we see this. <laughs> no, I don't think we're ever going to see the Phantom console. I think the guy even got in trouble recently. He was doing it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. All right, so uh, next story. Uh, California Extreme 2006 thrust arcade gaming forward. So, uh, so do you guys know much about California Extreme? Uh, it's a classic arcade show, and you're going to it, right? Yeah, and uh, Woody might be going too. We're not sure yet. He's checking his travel uh, schedule. Uh, we're going to be at it. California Extreme is this show in San Jose, and it's going to be on uh, July 8th and 9th. And I went to it a couple years ago, and it's a great show if you guys are into classic arcade games at all, because the place is full, and it's the whole convention center is basically full of classic arcade games. They're all set on free play. So you can go and play whatever games you want. I mean, and they have pretty much everything. They have all the Laserdisc games. They have all the Vector games. They have all the old games you remember. Or if you never saw them, it's a great time to see them for the first time. I take my wife's little uh, brother. He's like 11. And uh, he has a blast just playing all those old games. He just he just loves them. And the other thing that's really cool about California Extreme is um, they have these uh, speakers all day long. A lot of the guys who did the original games that worked at Atari and stuff... Uh, give uh, give speeches about it and kind of talk about it, and it's it's really cool. There's small little rooms, and you can ask questions. So it's it's really fun to interact with those guys and see what they're doing now. You know, we've had people in the past on the show, um, you know, that did a lot of the classic gaming, and uh, it's gonna be great to go ahead and talk to those guys. So I'm gonna be down there. Hopefully, Woody can go as well. I hope I get to see some of you guys there. It'd be great to talk to you. And, and you know, we're hoping that we can we can get some interviews with those guys and, and talk about it. It'd be cool to even do a podcast from there if possible. So there's a lot of things we're thinking about doing uh, with respect to California Extreme 2006. So I uh, so hope you guys go, and it's, it's going to be a good time. All right, so uh, on to the uh, retro respect section. Go ahead, Tom. Don't fall for it. Don't I'm not fall falling for it this time. <laughs> to the retro respect section. So we're going to talk about a computer that I think means a lot to both of us, and that's the Apple, the Apple I and the Apple II. Uh, the Apple II was actually my first computer, my first home computer anyway. Yeah. But before and, we uh, we go down that road, Tom, we got to say something. Uh, Woody, Woody is gone. He's still alive, but he's, he, he's... He's with us in spirit. But he, he had to leave the building. He, he, <laughs> he really to... is moving, so he had to, uh, I guess, go continue the move and... 
it's getting a little bit late, so we had to take off the first segments took a little longer than we anticipated, as yeah. it usually does. But um, and so we you, toyed with the idea of just recording some quotes from him and interspersing them <laughs> in here to make it seem like he was still here. But we yeah, thought, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. podcasting ethics say that no, we can't exactly. do that. So we have to own up that he's not here. Yeah. So he and we, and we didn't piss him off like we normally do. And none of that <laughs> happened this time. That's <laughs> good. That's good. Yeah. So uh, so why are we doing this? I guess before we start, you know, jumping into the history. Is that, uh, like I said, uh, this week in tech, I think it was like a month and a half ago, had the Apple 30th anniversary. And they had a lot of guys on there like Waz and some of the other guys who started Apple. And I thought it was really cool to hear from those guys. But the thing was, they didn't really present the history. So unless you were kind of in tune with what the history of Apple was, um, you probably wouldn't get that much out of it. And when I started like digging into the history, and I know you dug into it as well, Tom, mm-hmm. we found there was a lot of gaming related information on apple too which is kind of crazy definitely yeah so uh we thought it would be a great uh retro respect section a lot of the information we got from apple2history.org so uh you can go to apple2history.org and and pretty much everything we're saying here is covered there as well as a whole lot more but um we thought we'd get uh this information out there because i think some of you gamers would be interested in kind of knowing what origins were of a lot of the stuff that you're seeing in games so i guess it all starts in uh 1975 with uh, Wozniak, Steve Wozniak, he was uh, 26 years old, and I don't know what do you, what do you kind of know about Woz? Um, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, he worked for HP. He was in the Homebrew Computer Club in Palo Alto, the famous Homebrew Computer yeah. Club. Yeah. Um, and he worked and designed a lot of computers, sort of on paper in his head, and didn't build them. Um, yeah. One thing that was interesting about that when I was reading the stuff. It said that he wrote a version of Fortran and Basic for theoretical machines. So he'd just sit around, and I guess a lot of it had to do because he didn't really have money. Yeah, he'd right. like design these computers on paper, and he'd even write code for these theoretical computers because <laughs> he couldn't afford a computer. Right. Uh, so I guess one of the biggest things uh, that was kind of the center of the Homebrew Computer Club in uh, 1975 was the Intel 8080 was released. Right. And the the Altair home computer. Well, I guess it wasn't a home computer. It was more like a... The Altair computer. computer used yeah. it. Um, and the Altair was kind of odd because it was not like what we would see a computer looking like today. It was a bunch of switches and LEDs, but it could be programmed. And I, <laughs> right. I think they did some amazing things with it, even with that limited technology. But but obviously, that uh, the 8080 was way too expensive expensive for Waz to use and he wanted to build one of his computers so he he looked at the Motorola 6800 which he had a lot of the functionality he liked but it was like 175 right so then he found the 6502 yeah i guess a company called Moss Technology had a 6502 which is very similar to the 6800 it was only 25 bucks yeah so this was an inexpensive chip that he could use as the basis for um, his development of the right. apple and like we mentioned before, he he you kind of went into building these languages like Fortran and Basic. So he developed a version of Basic for the 6502, but it was still theoretical. And I guess a friend of his at HP developed a simulator, a simulator on some of the HP equipment, and he could Waz was able to actually test out his Basic on this simulator. Yeah, that's cool. And so he went on and he designed the computer that would be the Apple One. Yeah. And he had certain goals. He wanted it to have a keyboard. And, you know, today we would take that for granted, right? Of course, the computer's going to have a keyboard. But, uh, you know, this was opposed to just having switches. Like the Altair. He wanted to have a television display as opposed to just having LEDs. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I thought this was an interesting. Uh, I never saw an Apple one. You know, I've seen pictures, little wood box pictures, but uh, but I guess memory was expensive, which makes sense. And he was he didn't have a lot of money, so he used shift registers to display on the screen. So the display was slow. Uh, I guess it was like the 300 baud. Like if you ever had a 300 baud modem and you saw kind of how slow yeah, characters yeah. went out, that's essentially how slow characters would display on the screen of the Apple, what became the Apple One. Uh, no graphics, no sound. It's a text-only thing. And it had a single slot for expandability, but he didn't know how it was going to be expanded. And it uh, had 4K. It took 4K to put his version of BASIC in this computer. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have 4K for programs. Um, and since I guess it could run basic, that's why it was a huge hit with the computer club. Because, uh, you know, having something that you can program was kind of the goal. And doing it with something like the Altair was kind of a pain. But having something like a higher level language like basic really was was very cool. Right. So this computer got shown at the computer club. Yeah, I, I guess this move ahead, I guess, to 1976. He right. started showing the, the computer regularly at the computer club, and he ran into... Uh, well, he already knew Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs wanted to come to the club, I guess, to see the computer. And Jobs was 21 at the time. Yeah. And they, they knew each other because... And this is... I guess this is probably one of my favorite stories related to Apple. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the Atari uh, Breakout arcade game, uh, Jobs and Wozniak did a lot to uh, design it. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? So one of these very early... Video games happen to involve these two guys, and they go on to create Apple. But yeah, I think a lot of what they learned at Atari, you know, you can see like in the Apple II design. Well, we'll get to that later. But anyway, so there's a story that we found on the uh, the Apple Atari connection, and I, I can't remember the website we found it on, but we'll put a link of it in our show notes. So, you want to go through that, Tom? It's yeah. Cool. So Jobs had come back from India. I guess he was off in India trying to discover himself, which... (laughs) (laughs) And not apparently finding what he was looking for there. Where did he go? He went back to Atari. Yeah. And he convinced uh, them to give him a job at the plant in Los Gatos. Talked to Nolan Bushnell, I guess, and said, you know, convinced him to give him a job. And so uh, Nolan had this idea for another Pong-style game, except this time it would be where a one-player game where you try to break out, you know, break bricks out of a wall. And he offered the project to Steve and agreed on a payment of $700, which was, you know, it was more back then. Not, not a huge amount, but yeah, not bad. Okay, so Jobs said he'd have it done in a couple of days. Yeah, right. <laughs> no one also said there'd be a bonus that if he could keep the number of uh, chips down. TTL logic chips, right? Yeah, he'd get a bonus for every chip below 50. Yeah, nice. So Steve found himself really unqualified or underqualified to be able to design that so he called on Waz to help him out and offered him to s- split the $700 so Waz would get like 350 <laughs> yeah <laughs> so Waz had designed it under this pressure to get it done really quick he wouldn't say why and uh, at night while Jobs would be would be uh, working on the design Waz would be playing the first driving coin-op game Grand Track 10 yeah, I've seen that. Actually, if you guys go to uh, California Extreme, I saw that a couple of years ago. So after four days of a marathon programming and design session, I guess they had finished the prototype of Breakout. Yeah. They, I guess they got it down to uh, 36, 36 uh, chips. Goal being under 50, so that was yeah. good. Yeah. So Jobs took the prototype back to Nolan, and uh, 
They gave him the bonus. They gave him the five hundred dollars, and a, and the bonus turned out to be five thousand dollars. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that the bonus was way more than they were going to get paid. Right. That's yeah. great. Um, and Jobs turned around, and what did he do? He paid Waz the original three hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, didn't tell him about the bonus. <laughs> so I, I, you can kind of see where uh, Jobs. You know, a lot of these uh, documentaries and stuff later kind of show him as kind of a shrewd type of businessman. You can see how uh, how he works there, but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, the other thing that was interesting, there was a quote from Waz that said, quote, I would gladly have designed Breakout Game for Atari just for free, just to do it. I thought that Atari was one of the most important companies in the world, and it was an honor to be close to them. I thought that they would be in the arcade game business what Microsoft is now. So obviously, even, you know, the money was not really the big thing for Waz. Right, he was always yeah. somebody who was like into, you know, kind of accomplishing these goals and doing these hardware technical feats that nobody else could do at the time. And what's kind of funny, I guess, about that design is they weren't even able to reproduce the design because it was so complex to get it down to that uh, that number of chips. So they, the uh, Atari had to redesign part of it to get it to produce Breakout. But, <laughs> but it's a cool story because it, I think you'll see later that, that it really does impact kind of how the Apple II got created. Yeah, and we see, that, again, the influence of the early video games yeah. on the whole direction of the industry. So... So back on the main story track, Jobs uh, went to the computer club, uh, saw Wozniak there, and he's shown the computer, and Jobs made some suggestions and said that they should probably sell this uh, computer to uh, people at the computer club. Right. So they formed Apple Computer, uh, and do you know the reason they chose that name? No, and it's interesting because when I first encountered Apple Computer... I didn't know the real reason, and I thought that it was a reference to, you know, the biblical apple in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So apparently that uh, Jobs worked at an organic orchard, and he considered apple to be the perfect fruit. <laughs> so he wanted Apple Computer to be the perfect company, and so that's why they named it Apple. So the first thing that Jobs did was he approached a local computer store, the Byte Shop, I guess was the name of it. Um and they said that they would order 50, but they didn't want the kits. They wanted them fully assembled. You know, they wanted something that people could go in and buy. Right. So uh, they set up an assembly line in Jobs Garage, uh, assembly, assembling and testing these, uh, these computers out. And I love what they consider fully assembled. <laughs> fully assembled, lacked a keyboard, monitor, or power supply. <laughs> but the original Apple One sold for $666.66. Which I just think is a crazy that, price. That is a crazy price. Uh, and they sold like 200 in a period of 10 months. Um, but what was kind of funny about it is, you know, we talked about it was a, uh, capable of handling basic. Right. This, this basic language. Well, Wozniak, it would take him uh, about 20 to 30 minutes to type it in because it would it was about 3K of hex bytes. And he was actually typing in the hex yeah, the bytes, hex bytes. Right. Because there was, not, no, we're there was no way to assembly. load the program. We're talking hex bytes, yeah, not assembly, yeah, yeah. for people that do uh, programming or even way back when. So imagine people at the computer club having to type this in. And I guess Waz knew this pretty much by, uh, had it memorized. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> you could just type it in. Like, um, So uh, the guy at the byte shop said, you guys need, really need a cassette interface. So right. uh, so Waz went back and he's like, well, it's a good thing I had that single slot. And he <laughs> you know, quickly designed this, this cassette interface that he could plug in. Um, and it was essentially just a card and it came with uh, Waz's version of BASIC. And it, but it only worked with the expensive tape recorders. Right. And uh, it, I guess it's a bite shop that actually went out and, and got those Koa wood cases produced that you kind of see with the Apple One. 
Right. So I guess that's kind of the backdrop that kind of set the stage for really the computer that I think most people know, well, at least knew Apple back in the day for, and that's the uh, Apple II. Right. And again, the Apple II was my first home computer. Um, One thing I wanted to bring up is just how odd it was back then to have a computer at all. I mean, we take it for granted now that everybody's got computers. If you if you tell your friends, oh, I bought a new computer, it'd be no big deal. Like, okay, what kind did you get? But back then, when I had an Apple II, and I would tell people, yeah, I have this computer, and uh, you know, it's in my basement, and, and I write code for it, people's reaction would be like, well, a computer? Well, what would you want that for? What's the, what, what's the point of it? Why would you want to have a computer? Because it just wasn't something that people did. It was a very weird thing. It was sort of like this very weird, expensive, impractical hobby to have this computer, which nobody quote, quite knew why you'd want that in your home or what you would do with it. And you know there wasn't widely available software that did anything very useful. So it was, it was basically just a hobby to tinker around with. It's kind of like... Uh, you know, maybe today if you said, oh, I have an ultralight plane that I'm building and, you know, someday I'm going to go fly it around. You know, that's kind of cool, but people might go, well, but why would you want to do that? You know, and that's sort of the reaction that people had to these early computers is, well, what kind of a strange hobby is that, you know? <laughs> totally. So, um, I, I kind of liked it better back then. <laughs> maybe so. So fast forward to 1977. <clears throat> Wozniak had been working on enhancements uh, to make the Apple One, you know, faster and more functional. So to do that, one of the things he did is he moved display into main memory. So instead of having this 300 baud esque little typing scenario going on, you got instant screen updates. So um, what's interesting too is that a lot of the changes that he made were not with the end user in mind. And this is probably my, one of my favorite <laughs> quotes of all time from Waz. He's like, a lot of the features of the Apple II went in because I designed Breakout for the uh, Atari, for the arcade version. I designed it in hardware. I wanted to write it in software now. So that was a reason that color was added in first. <laughs> so that games could be programmed. I sat down one night and tried to put it into BASIC. Fortunately, I'd written the BASIC myself. So I just burned some new ROMs with line drawing commands, color changing commands, and various BASIC commands that would plot in color. I got this ball bouncing around and said... Well, it needs sound, and I added a speaker to the Apple II. It wasn't planned, it was just accidental. Obviously, <laughs> you need paddles, so I had to scratch my head and design a simple minimum chip paddle circuit and put on some paddles. So a lot of the features that really made the Apple II stand out in its day came from a game, and the fun features that were built into it were to do one pet project, which was to program a basic version of Breakout and show it off at the club. Now, I mean, <laughs> I I used basic, and I used all the plot commands and oh, stuff, yeah. and I... Mm-hmm. It's just cool to me that that's all driven from the fact that he did breakout in hardware for Atari. I think a lot of people don't know the lineage and really so, know that that's kind of where it came from. So literally, some of the hardware was designed to make it convenient for him to implement breakout. Exactly in basic, <laughs> you know, in basic, which yeah. is cool because like a lot of basic at the time didn't have the, those immediate graphics commands. You know. Oh yeah, it was very unusual at the time to have such a convenient way to do color graphics yeah it was very unusual that yeah. that was something that really made the apple II stand out so he i guess he also added more features to the computer uh, that he wanted you know again without necessarily the consumer in mind i know um he he wanted eight expansion slots and jobs thought that users would never need more than two i i can say on the <laughs> apple i have i have four things in it so uh mm-hmm. so he was obviously right i also thought it was funny to hear, and i've heard this too uh the Fairchild Channel F, 
a game console had this issue with the RF modulator that it gives off it gave off too much interference and the FCC wouldn't approve. So Apple did kind of what the Channel F did or vice versa. And essentially what they did, you know, this is the RF modulator is what's going to allow you to hook it to your TV. Right. But since it wouldn't pass FCC approval, they didn't give it with the system. It was up to a third party to create it. <laughs> that way, since the two th- weren't connected together, the FCC wouldn't have to approve them together, which That's is pretty funny. funny. So this other company called, uh, uh, I don't know what the name of the company was, but it was Marty Spurgle, I guess it was. He developed this modulator called Supermons. And what's kind of funny is uh, Apple said that they would, you know, potentially sell up to 50 units a month. And it turns out that he sold about 400,000 of these super mods. <laughs> That's great. So that guy got rich from just uh, from pr- providing this RF modulator for it. So some of the other features that Waz added was uh, the ROMs included terminal software to do text display. Obviously, the cassette input-output routines... Um, he wrote a dis- dissembler, and obviously, instead of having basic and tape or whatever, they moved it into ROM. So it was available when turning uh, on the machine. Um, let's talk about the text a minute, because maybe not everybody knows, the text on the Apple II was uppercase only. Yeah, well, not on the Apple IIe, but on the original On Apple the original II. Apple II. Yeah. And, you know, again, today, that's kind of funny to think about, because you would assume that, of course, text is going to have upper and lower case. But back then, lower case was a luxury that, you know, you didn't really need. And eventually, they had lower case. But when it first came out, it was uppercase only. And, you know, nobody really minded, because it was just so cool to have a computer at all. So, <laughs> Yeah. There's a quote that in here about uh, Waz and his version of BASIC. And... Uh, it's pretty funny. One of the, the funniest parts is that, again, he knew uh, BASIC, and he had it pretty much memorized, and it was all um, machine code. And it says, the integer BASIC that we shipped with the first Apple IIs was never assembled, ever. There was one handwritten copy, all handwritten, all hand-assembled, so we were in an era where we could not afford tools, and that no official source listing of integer BASIC ever was uh, existed at Apple. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess there was only one bug in it. It was a misspelling. <laughs> in one of the error messages but all hand assembled that's amazing yeah it's crazy because he didn't have he, i guess there was no uh assembler or whatever so that's crazy i have done some hand assembly and it is weird it is not necessarily fun but it just shows you how waz was able to do this kind of stuff yeah. man. the guy was amazing so what about jobs and we've talked a lot about waz and kind of what his role was in creating the apple II. But what was Jobs doing? And I think this is kind of cool. What he was focused on is probably what he's still focused on today. Well, he was focused on you know what we'd now call the end user experience or the user experience. How you know how the product seemed to people who were not necessarily um, the computer club hardcore people, but you know making it more accessible to the average person. He was also, I guess, interested <clears throat> in the way it looked, right? And how it looked, yeah. Um, he thought that the sort of Cigar boxes, in other words, the the, the homemade uh, cases that were used by the homebrew people. He didn't like the way that looked. He wanted a nice, you know, angular, elegant looking box. Yeah. And uh, I guess he wanted to model it after the Hewlett Packard, you know, kind of like with the case they use for their calculators. Because he right. liked the sleek, fresh lines and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so, and I can see that today with the iPod, right? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> Apple still has the knack for making these nicely designed, uh, attractive-looking boxes, right? And, uh, you know, with the Apple II, 
It had this feature that you can just sort of pop open the top. Yeah, that, see, that's what's cool. Like when I got my Apple II, yeah, I was crazy, dude. Because I was like at work and I was telling Ron, I was like, you know, I can just pop the top right off this thing, and he's like, yeah. no way. Yeah, it's like Velcroed down. Yeah, exactly. It's like Velcroed down, and it's kind of like almost popping the hood of your car or something. It's that easy. You just kind of grab it and poof, and and you can open up and you can see the chips. You can see everything. Now, what I remember about this is that. Um, you know, with my Apple II, what would happen is after a while, if you used it enough and turned it on and off, on and off, because of the heat cycling, some of the chips could sort of work themselves loose. Yeah. And so what you had to do every once in a while is open that top, of course, while it was powered down, and press the chips back down I, with I like your to do fingers. I it when it's on, Tom. <laughs> well, you live dangerously. <laughs> but, but yeah, you press the chips back in with your fingers, and like every, maybe every month or two, or you know, however, however often it was, you would do that. And it's just funny, again, to think about that. Like, you wouldn't do that today. You yeah. know, you wouldn't open up your, uh, your power book and <laughs> press the chips in with your hand. But, uh, Not Apple to get too. too far off topic, but uh, the Atari ST that I got mm-hmm. had the same kind of issue. Uh-huh. And uh, Ron told me that when he had his Atari ST that the, uh, the, if you called tech support, they'd say, yeah, lift it about two feet off the ground and <laughs> drop it. And then it usually starts working. I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me. That's I, and great. so we, I tried that. I didn't drop it, but I like set it over and I uh-huh. pounded it a couple times. Atari ST came right on. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so, yeah, the chips I think do come loose. If I remember this right, when some of the chips would come loose, you would start to see these weird uh, like static on the screen. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's how you would know it's time to turn it off and, and open up and press the chips back in. Nice. So the, I guess the Apple II, you know, they got they got the design, they had all the, the stuff ready to go, and so they were preparing for the West Coast Computer Fair that was April of 77, uh, and they hired, uh, these are two guys that I think they were also on the Twit podcast, uh, Chris Espinoza and Randy Wigington, and they were high school students at the time, and their initial job was to write these programs to demonstrate the computer's color and sound, and uh, Jobs, I guess, was focused on the logo. Right, so he was, you know, that original Apple logo that we all that uh, these, we all I know, but this. it was the striped one. Yeah, not the one you see today, but it was the yeah. one, the yeah. sort of rainbow striped. I one. love the quote too; it's great. <laughs> the quote says, uh, "Steve Jobs was meticulous about the style and appearance of the logo. When Janov suggested that the six colors be separated by thin strips to make reproduction easier, Jobs refused. Yeah, he's like, no way. So okay. again, very detail oriented about <laughs> very the appearance about the appearance of yeah. Thing. So, you know, the computer came out, the Apple II, it was kind of a mild success. Yeah, mm-hmm. at the West Coast Computer Fair, I, I guess it didn't even show that well. It didn't even get in the major magazines. It was, I don't know what the name of the magazine was, but uh, but it kind of really didn't hit its popularity with the mainstream until the Disc Two came out, which is a <laughs> floppy disk. Because yeah. before floppy disk, it was all cassette tape storage, right? Right. And I vividly remember this. Okay, first of all, the cassette load and save time was very slow took a long time and the longer the program you're trying to save the longer it would take it could take i mean a good 5 10 15 minutes to save and load a program on yeah. cassette tape and it was also very flaky what did you like, have a uh, cassette tape on the apple yeah yeah oh. i had the apple 2 cassette and it was very flaky because you could uh, you could save your program to cassette and then you could try to load it back in, and it wouldn't load. Yeah, I had a VIC-20 with cassette. Yeah, yeah. had the same issue. I'd, I'd wait for like 20 minutes, and then I'd run it and be like, error. Because yeah. it did something <laughs> wrong. And I was like, and, what up And what would, happen, what would happen is, uh, because it took so long to save to cassette tape, if you were working on developing a program, 
oftentimes it was very tempting to live dangerously and not save very often because if you did save, it would take so long and you'd sort of lose your train of thought. And so you'd be sitting there and, and be thinking, okay, you know, I've, I've really put a lot of work in. Do I want to save now? Or ah, maybe I'll push it a little further, write a few more lines of code. And uh, often this ended in tragedy because, you know, you would have, yeah. have been sitting there for hours in, the, in some, you know, programming session and then you'd have a ton of stuff and, you know, just then something would flake out and it would crash and you'd lose everything or you'd, you'd save it and the next time you tried to load it, it wouldn't load. And I can remember just uh, tearing my hair out and being so mad and having to start all over and, and just, you know, type the whole thing in again. It was it was bad. So you need to get the, past uh, it at some point, Tom. Yeah, you seem to really. Yeah, I guess it traumatized me. <laughs> but once that's why fl- you save so often now, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, now saving doesn't take any time. It's not yeah. a big commitment to like a fifteen minute save. But okay, so then the the floppy disk. When the yeah. floppy disk came out, all of a sudden it made it more reasonable that okay, you had a real storage system right. that you could more or less depend on. I guess Mark is is it? I don't know what the guy's name is. Markula, Markula. Anyway, he was the president at the time in 1977, and he made the floppy disk his top priority. And here's classical Waz. Like when I think about him, it's like Waz didn't know much about floppy disks, but he had uh, seen a manual once (laughs) (laughs) from this uh, Sugart company. Is it Sugart company or whatever? Uh, And so here's a here's a quote: as an experiment, as an experiment, Waz had earlier conceived a circuit that would do much of what Sugart manual said. Uh, was needed to control a disk drive. Waz didn't know how computers actually controlled drives, but his method had seemed to him particularly simple and clever. <laughs> uh, when he was challenged to put a disk drive in the Apple, he recalled that circuit and began considering its feasibility. He looked at the way other computer companies, including IBM, controlled drives. He also began to examine disk drives, particularly Northstar's. After reading the North Star manual, Waz knew that his circuit would do what theirs did and more. He knew he had a really clever design. So he designs his circuit by reading another company's manual without ever knowing that he's going to have to design this disk drive. Yeah, and that's just crazy. So one of the things that I found kind of interesting about this is that, remember on the five and a quarter floppies, there'd be this little hole off to the right? Yes. I yes. Guess, guess that was a timing hole. I never even knew what that was for. But it helped the drive to synchronize itself. So how fast is it doing reads and writes? Mm-hmm. Um, but Waz's solution allowed for self-synchronization and didn't rely on the timing hole. So this guy, who never really thought he was going to do disk drives, is just looking at it. There's these huge companies like IBM and stuff, and he's using this timing hole. And he looks at it, and he's like, I got a better design. We don't <laughs> even have to use this timing hole. You guys yeah. are idiots. So uh, him and Randy Wigington uh, wrote the software for the drive. And they were preparing for the CES show. And I guess they just like worked day and night near Christmas or like for weeks at a time to get this drive ready to show. And uh, another good story is that they stayed up all night working on a demonstration disc to show off this floppy disk. And uh, I don't know who had the idea, but they, they decided to go ahead and make a backup. And I don't know how many times you've done this, Tom. I've done it. You know, you do the little swap. You're swapping the disc back and forth. Back in the day, you get to the end and you're like, uh... I backed up my blank disk. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had, for, I had forgotten all about that. I had forgotten all about that. But yeah. now that you say that, that's exactly right. That would happen. You would accidentally, you know, copy the blank disk over top of the one that went with your data on it. Yeah. You, like, try to boot it. And you're like, do nothing. What's up, dude? Bad co- oh, no, not. So I guess they did that, like, after they got it all perfected. So then they spent uh-huh. that whole night in Vegas and uh, got it ready to go. And uh, they got it done in time. So it sold originally for four ninety five with the controller card, which was actually the cheapest of any drive at the time. The most uh, 
it was the cheapest drive at the time, I guess, up to that point. So, uh, and that's really what drove the success of the Apple II was that drive. Because at that point, anybody could use it, uh, and it wasn't this whole uh, tape thing. And, it, and then, of course, you, you have games coming out with, for it because you've got this version of Waz's Basic. You have the ability to drop right in and right. do machine code. You've got color graphics. You've got a disk drive now. Now you've got something that people at home can actually get a hold of. It's tangible. And obviously, once people like you, and I never owned one back then. I, I owned right. a VIC-20 because I couldn't afford it. But I used my Apple II a lot at school. People started programming on it. Yeah. And what I find kind of interesting is the is some of the people who started programming on the Apple II and what they went on to do. It's just kind of amazing. So let's go through some of those names. Okay, so um, Danielle Berry, formerly known as Dan Button. Do you know about that story? Yeah, Tom? yeah, I do. I've okay. actually met her at a trade show once. Really? Yeah. That's very cool. We're going to have to talk about that some future episode, but... Uh... Yeah, um, and this is the developer who came up with Mule, and probably the most famous game, and Seven Cities of Gold. Right. Uh, there's also Bill Budge, who created the famous pinball construction set. I loved that. Yeah, he was like the man that. back in the day. Yeah. Bill Budge was like kind of the like hero of the programming so, back then. you know, this, this allowed you to make your own pinball tables, you know, and save them. It was great. But he said that he just, you know, he had an Apple II and he started hacking on it. And then all of a sudden he got, he made a game and, you know, sold it. And it's just really cool. A lot of stuff that the Apple II, I think people got their start there because it was so easy to approach. Right. And then Richard Garriott. Who Lord British. Lord British. Talked about him before. Um, he started on the Apple II with a game called Acalabeth, which was predated the Ultima series. But it was it was similar to what would become the Ultima series. And if you read that story, essentially, he I think he worked at a computer store or something. And uh, yeah. he, in his spare time, he was just hacking away. And, and the owner said something like, you know, that's pretty cool. You should We should try to sell it. And that's how he got started. And- yeah, I actually played Acalabeth back in the day. And... This is one of the games... Okay, back then, games were not the big, fancy industry that they are now. And so a lot of this stuff was sort of self-published almost. It was very uh, low budget. Some of these games, you'd go into a computer store, and the game would come like in a plastic Ziploc bag with some kind of like home-published pamphlet or something yeah. with, for the documentation, and it would just be a disc. And uh, Acalabeth was a... It, it was an adventure game, sort of a, a primitive RPG, and it had some wireframe graphics. Yeah, I played And the wireframe graphics at the time were so cool because, okay, finally you had, you know, this was a big step up from text adventures. You finally had something you could see that almost looked a little bit 3D, and you could explore these, these dungeons or whatever and see these, very you know, cool. very very uh, crudely drawn monsters and stuff but at the time it was a it was an amazing thing i remember just thinking that was so great and of course he went on to do the ultimate series he's working on a game now a massively multiplayer online role-playing game uh, name escapes me right now but so he's still doing games today the one that i found most interesting was mark termel i don't know if you are familiar with mark termel but i remember him because he did a lot of the Midway coin-op games where he worked on them. Like uh, He worked on Smash TV, Total Carnage, NBA Jam, WWF yeah. Wrestling. I think he's even in NBA Jam as one of the hidden characters. <laughs> well, he got his start uh, way back on the Apple II, and he did a lot of programming for Sirius Software. They did like He did, personally, Sneakers, Beer Run, which was a great game, by the way, Beer Run, and <laughs> Free Fall. So Mark Tremell, who went on to work at Midway on some of the games I really enjoyed, also worked back in the day on the Apple II. Ken and Roberta Williams. I think you've probably heard of them, right? 
Yeah, they were the founders of Sierra Online. They made a couple games, Mystery House and Mission Asteroid. I've never played Miss- Mission Asteroid, have you? No, I haven't. But the, again, they found some interesting ways to do graphics on the Apple II. Uh, remember that with with the amount of storage and memory that you had, it's not like today where you can you know load some fairly large GIF or JPEG graphics file or I think something. It's a GIF, Tom. Uh, right. So, but they had to they had to come up with ways to uh, to make a graphical game that would have a lot of different screens. Um, but fit it into that format, and they did things like you know having you having the program actually draw the picture by drawing each right, line yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I was playing uh, mm-hmm. King's Quest on the Apple II the other day, and that was crazy. Like it remind you know what reminds me of remember like leaderboard golf in those games when they came out later. <laughs> they used the same kind of technology to draw the golf right, course. Yeah, 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 it would actually draw it. You could watch it draw the picture. Um. Then, okay, here's one that I really like is uh, Robert Woodhead, who created the Wizardry series. Yeah, huge series. That was huge. I mean, I played all of those Wizardry games, and especially uh, just the very first Wizardry was an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, Again, it had wireframe graphics. It had 3D graphics. But I think for me, that was the first game where I really felt like I was truly exploring a 3d world yeah and that world started to feel real to me and i can remember uh you know getting out the graph paper and making my own maps of the wizardry levels because of course games like them they didn't auto map or anything you just had to do it and you know after a while i had a whole bunch of the wizardry dungeon completely auto, auto ma- memorized lame anyway yeah but back then you know you had to make your maps and i was proud I of those you should maps. have to make your maps do you remember being proud of your yeah. maps? Like you'd make the map and you'd like try to draw it all exactly. really nice because you knew you were going to depend on that map. I usually what I did is I had uh, just used a graph paper and then I would like put numbers and stuff and then I'd have another page where I would describe, which was I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, that's a much better approach, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so two, the next two names I think a lot of people, even today's gamers, will recognize: uh, John Carmack. Have you heard of him, Tom? Yeah, of course, from Doom, Quake, Doom and Quake. Uh, and he's quoted as saying, all the computer games I wrote in high school were adventure games, and my first two commercial sales were were Ultima-style games for the Apple II. He didn't do Ultima, but he did those kind of games for the Apple II. And that's where he got his start in programming, was on the Apple II. And uh, I think a friend of his, John Romero, also started on the Apple II, and here's a quote from him. In 1979, I started programming and making my own games on the Apple II computer. I finally sold my first game to an Apple II magazine in June of 1984, and that was the point I finally became a professional. So it's very cool to hear about these guys who started programming way back when on, on the Apple II. Yeah. So what are some of our memories, I guess? Uh, you've talked about a lot of yours, Tom. Um, my memories, uh, Apple II was the first computer I ever saw. Uh, I was a, in elementary school. I remember seeing an Apple computer walking up to it and going, what is this thing? They showed me a game playing on it, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And from that, I really got interested in programming because I wanted to figure out how can you program these. Yeah. And what was kind of interesting back then is everybody programmed computers. Exactly. Back when computers, when home computers were more of a hobby and an, a weird hobby at that, if you, ha- if you owned a computer, you programmed. I mean, that everyone did because there was really no choice. There just weren't that many uh, commercially available software packages 
Um, and if there were, even if there were, you probably couldn't afford them. And so um, you were going to do a lot of programming. And if you wanted a game, chances are you were going to try to write it yourself. And if you wanted anything, chances are you're going to try to write it yourself because that's what the hobby was about. Well, what was kind of interesting too is that I think everybody programs. I mean, my wife programmed on an Apple II when we were in school because everybody liked to plot the pictures, right? Yeah. They give you yeah. some graph paper, you draw it out, you'd be able to plot this thing, and you're like, wow, I can plot this. Maybe I can animate it. What right, do I do next? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff was added, you know, just because he wanted to produce uh, Breakout, Breakout <laughs> is kind of what I think got a lot of kids into programming because they said, oh, this is really easy to create these graphics. Let's make them animate. Let me, maybe I can write a game myself because you could see a lot of games being played on it, you know, that were commercial right. and uh, kind of got them into it. So so let's look at a list. Uh, what are some of our top games of all time or games that we remember fondly on the, uh, on the Apple II? Well, one of them certainly for me is Castle Wolfenstein. Castle Wolfenstein. And you know, a chum. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So today, a lot of people probably think of Wolfenstein as Wolfenstein 3D, which was the precursor to Doom. But Wolfenstein 3D was the sequel to Castle Wolfenstein on the Apple II, which was a non-3D. It was an overhead view game uh, where you tried to escape from Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah. And it was one of the first. Uh, really popular Apple II games to have digitized speech in it so you could hear the, yeah. the bad guys talking and, and saying things to you. Um, it had, you know, it had some amusing, I remember it had some amusing bugs. Like there was a, if you stood in just the right place, you could actually throw a grenade through a wall yeah. if you did it on the diagonal. And so that was one of the cheats is you could, you could uh, blow up people in the next room. Well, that's the, in multiplayer, that had to be a, a problem, right? Multiplayer? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess yeah, yeah, it was Halo where people were complaining about that. Yeah. Uh, so Wolfenstein, you know, that was a good one. Uh, what about Choplifter? Choplifter. Now, I have a good story about Choplifter. Choplifter was from Bruderbund. Yeah. And Dan Gorlin, I believe. Later on, um, when I got into the software industry myself, I had an occasion to visit Bruderbund, and I went to their their site. And in their break room... They actually had like a stand-up arcade version of Choplifter. I saw that. Yeah, I've seen the stand-up yeah. version. So I thought that was pretty cool. Another Broderbund game is uh, Load Runner, obviously. Load Runner. Now, what I loved about Load Runner is uh, the ability to create your own levels. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a great game. It's still fun today. It, it a is. A lot of these games are still fun to get today. Uh, Ultimo, we talked about earlier, obviously. Now, one that I played in school a lot, which is probably not a game that people would say, oh, that's a, that's a great game or whatever, was Oregon Trail. Oh, but yeah. I played that all the time because it was educational. But yet I could play it during the day, so it was great. Yeah. yeah. Oregon Trail is a classic, and... Uh, Carmen I, San Diego kind of... Carmen San Diego also had this sort of educational element. And Oregon Trail... Now, I have some funny things about Oregon Trail. Or... Most people listening to this have probably seen or heard of or played. I would Oregon say most Trail. people haven't. But really, I would think so. Uh, Oregon Trail is a simulation of sorts of you know the westward migration along the Oregon Trail. So you have a covered wagon and you have some supplies and you try to get your family of settlers uh, all the way to Oregon. And of course, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. You know, your your wagon can break its wheels, or you can get disease, or you can right. run out of food. Um, what we used to like to do is to see how quickly we could die. <laughs> so that's a great, great way to play the game, Tom. Yeah, just just for fun, you know. See if you if you did everything wrong, 
how quickly you could have everyone die. How quickly die. could you die, Tom? I think the record was uh, to die within 11 miles of starting the trip. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's a, that's a real upper, Tom. But, uh, yeah, it had this funny... Um, the Apple II version had this funny sort of hunting thing where you're hunting for buffalo. Yeah, And exactly. you had to you know stop the sights in just the right place yeah. and, and shoot the gun. And, uh, of course, this game was later remade. It was remade many it times. It was made over and over. And but, I think you can still buy it today. Right. I like the original one the best. Yeah, the original one was quite funny. So another game, uh, Apple Panic, which was a, kind of a copy of the arcade game Space Panic, but a lot mm-hmm. of fun. I, I still love that game. I've been playing it on my uh, Apple II. Apple Cider Spider. Can't tank for that one and uh, beer run. We talked about that earlier. Another game that I don't know if you ever played was Droll. No, I haven't. Played oh, that it. game is great. What is it? Yeah, it's like a, it's kind of like a platforming. Uh, this robot dude like floats around shooting. The graphics are awesome on it. Really, they are. I'll have to show you after this podcast. You'll. I played on the C sixty four quite a bit, but mm-hmm. uh, playing on the Apple two, it, it's it's fun. I mean, there was just a ton of games for the Apple two that that I, I still remember vividly. So. So beyond games, you know, what if what if I want to deal with an Apple II today? What does it mean? Uh, like I said earlier, I recently purchased an Apple II on eBay. Uh, I never had an Apple II like uh, Tom when I was a kid, unfortunately. I guess Tom was rich and I wasn't. <laughs> I had to settle for the VIC-20, which uh-huh. it's not really comparable. But the C64, I got to say, has better graphics. But I still love the Apple II because it, uh, it, it was great. So I wanted to, to get one of these, so I went ahead on eBay and started looking around. And I, I, I paid $25 for a computer, the color monitor, and two drives. $25? 25 bucks, yeah. Wow, so for, for twice that, you could have bought uh, an Xbox 360 game. <laughs> I know, that's what I'm saying. It's like insane, and look at all the fun I'm having. So, that's great. So the first question I had was like, well, how am I going to get software for this? So I did, I bought a bunch of software off eBay. I bought like this bulk collection of software, but... Like the original discs and stuff? Original discs, yeah. I'll, sh- you wanna, I'll show you those after the podcast, cool. too, but... Um, so I wanted to figure out what if what about transferring these images because you know there's a lot of these images available out there. It's pretty much abandoned where now, and I want to get it on my uh, mm-hmm. on my Apple II so I can use it. So I found this program called ADT, which is the uh, Apple Data Transfer Program, and the whole idea is that you can transfer these Apple II disc images from your PC to your Apple II. So it was kind of cool. You know, I'm into like figuring out how to do these kind of things. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of hacking around and stuff. So. Uh, you have to get a, what they call a Super Serial Card 2 for the uh, Apple II. Put it in the Apple II using one of the slots that we talked about earlier. Those slots that you would never need more than two of. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and so I was reading online, and it's like it says, you you know, obviously you need to get this ADT program on your Apple II, and then you run one on your Windows box as well to transfer between them. I'm like, well, how do you get it on the Apple II if, <laughs> if you know, you need it to transfer stuff? And well, it's like, yeah, well, exactly. It, <laughs> if it's the thing that's going to receive the data, yeah. how do you get it there? So it's like, you know, and it kept saying, so if obviously you have to transfer it so it can be on there to transfer the stuff. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. So, uh, so I, I keep, you know, I, I figure whatever. I'll buy the card and I'll figure it out. So I get it. And essentially what happens, and it's, it's really cool, is you have to set the Super Serial card down to 300 baud. Uh-huh. And you and what you do is you like in uh, Windows you tell it to type the contents of this file and essentially what it does is it uses a super serial two card and the characters start displaying on the screen like if you were typing them. So it's as if you're typing in the source yes. to the program and you have to set the card down to like 300 baud because if it was any faster than that the Apple II wouldn't be able to keep up and type. So it's essentially like you're typing the programs and because Waz 
allowed you to go into uh, this machine uh, language mode where you can start typing stuff in. You can actually watch it typing in all the op codes at 300 baud. <laughs> and at the end, it saves a program. Uh, so then you've got this floppy disk. And then at that point, you can transfer images straight from your PC over, and it will write it right to the drive using this ADD, ADT program on the Apple II. That's great. It's pretty awesome. So my wife, uh, her little brother, who's 11, yeah, you don't ask, um, <laughs> is spending some time with us. And what I thought was interesting is he's been using the Apple II to program on. Because, you know, a lot of the computers today are just too complex. He wants to get into programming, thinks it's cool that you can plot these pictures just like when we were kids. Yeah, right. And he thinks the Apple II is great because he can just turn it on and start programming right away. And it's like something that I think is kind of lost in today's com- computers and with today's kids. How do they program? You know, and I think the Apple II right. has been great for getting him to learn that kind of stuff. Yeah, the Apple II was a very accessible... I mean, you had to... You had to be motivated enough to learn a little bit about basic but it was it was easy and convenient to start immediately making graphics and plotting lines and making little pictures and you got this fairly quick reward of of feeling like you'd accomplished something so another story i have related to uh her little brother is uh you know i have a 360 i have all these things so we we played the 360 we played some games on that we played some games on my snes my dreamcast because i just got Mm -hmm. this thing all set up and we played some, you know, arcade games and stuff. And we played Zork together. All right. You know, and he was reading it. And we were typing in, go this direction, do that, picked us up. So when I took him back to his uh, par- his parents' house, I was like, so, you know, over the weekend, which game did you like the best? And he's like, well, I like Zork the best. That's awesome. And it, I mean, it's totally <laughs> cool because, like, uh, against the 360 and stuff, Zork, he enjoyed more. Because he said it's like, you know, it's like I controlled the adventure and I, you know, and the fact that you just have to read it, he really liked it. He dug it. So I just yeah. thought that was a really cool story and tells you something about, you know, do we need graphics and all this stuff. <laughs> and if people don't know about Zork, it's completely text-based. It's a, one of the original text adventures. Yeah. Um, there is something magical about Zork. And... The writing in Zork is really clever. And I think that... Like, here's the part that totally threw him off, which is funny. It's the room that's really noisy. Uh Uh-huh. So, do you remember this room, Tom? The echo room? The echo room. Yeah. So, like, he would type something, like, look at something. It's like, look, look, look. look." look. Yeah, it kept repeating it. And then then I figured out, oh, it's because the room's really noisy. (laughs) You can't even think. Right. Yeah, it's really cool. And there's a lot of cleverness to Zork. Like, if you try to do something that's not allowed, it, it won't just say, you know, you can't do that. It'll have some very funny, cleverly worded way of saying that you can't do that action. Yeah. And uh, just the writing is really good. I think if you were to compare that to some of the writing in today's games, where, yeah, you might have 3D graphics and you might even have full motion video and you might have Patrick Stewart or whoever saying the line. But it's not as good a line as some of the lines in Zork. Cause it's very true. It's some great writing. So, I mean, we've talked about the Apple II quite a bit. Probably time to cut this segment off. So, uh, right. any uh, closing statements on the Apple II, Tom? Um, I guess just the idea that, you know, with the Apple II, especially early on, if you wanted to know how to do something, it's not like now. You can't just Google it. Not back then. No. 
a lot of this I did m- find, however, that Googling with Carmen Sandiego makes it a bit easier. <laughs> I bet it does. But you know what I'm saying is like if you if you needed to know how to do some coding trick with the Apple II, if you needed to know how to get some graphics thing to work, you couldn't just Google for the answer. I mean, it was really this community of people where you would go to the user group meetings, maybe you'd ask around, like, you yeah. know, how how do you get the program to do this or that? Um, it was much it was much harder to um, find out those tricks of the trade yeah and uh maybe you'd read the magazines and magazines would oftentimes have program listings you could type in and the programs tended to be fairly short so you could actually put the whole program listing in a few pages of the magazine and yeah a lot of times it wouldn't work or (laughs) you'd type it in you never knew if it was a typo in the magazine or your your, or your own typo exactly but it was a you know it was a very different era as far as uh, the ease of figuring stuff out and i think Part of the struggle of that was good. It was yeah. it, it made you be curious. It made you try. And also, the Apple II wasn't a very powerful computer by today's standards. And it wasn't a very fast computer by today's standards. And so it really made you have to think about, you know, even writing a basic program, how am I going to make this not be slow? How am yeah. I going to have some clever algorithm that's going to make it, you know, an acceptable speed when I'm trying to make my little, you know, homebrew uh, cowboy shoot 'em up game or whatever it was or homebrew yeah, exactly. Star Wars game. It really was a, a cool sort of intellectual tool yeah. that forced you to think about interesting programming issues. And I think that's what you're saying about, you know, getting kids to today use something like the Apple. It's it's great. Yeah. And I guess what I would say is that, you know, from doing the research that we did, and that's kind of what hopefully a lot of our subsequent podcasts will do because that is kind of what I think we're mostly interested in. You know, obviously the modern gaming, but also learning kind of the history of these things that we grew up seeing is that, you know, it had a big impact on on games. Yeah. And I didn't really know that uh, to the extent that, you know, we learned by doing this that, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of what was in the Apple II was driven by games and it really drove people to develop games on it. And I think a lot of the games that we see today really, you know, like the developers got their start back with the Apple II. And so it, it's 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 key, you know. People say, "Well, you guys are talking about computers. It's not not really about games, and maybe that doesn't fit really, you know, with your podcast." But I think it does because, in the end, I think it really was kind of the fire that's you know started this whole video game thing and giving people these ideas and and making them want to push the envelope a bit. So I really think it goes coming back to the Apple II. Yeah. One other note about the Apple II is that you know we've talked about how it had color graphics and that at the time color graphics was kind of unusual. And I remember that when the first Macintosh came out, the original Mac, it was black and white. Yeah. And it seemed to me like such a huge step backwards. Like, how can you go from having this cool color graphics to saying, oh, our next generation computer is going to be black and white, that it completely turned me off to the Mac. Yeah. And I lost all interest in, even though the Apple II was my first computer, I lost interest in it when it went to black and white. And I really didn't become interested in the Macintosh again until very, very recently when OS X came out. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm exactly the same. <laughs> so yeah. it's like a whole generation you know, of, yeah. of Apple products just uh, were not interesting to me because of that. There's an, a Mac over there on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> but now I like it again because of OS X. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, that about does it for Episode 6 of Twitch Asylum. Again, we apologize for the delay, but now that we're back, we're going to be coming at you every uh, two weeks again. Hopefully. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Unless something else comes up, and I don't think it will. Um, you know, obviously this version isn't edited at all compared to our <laughs> previous versions, uh, and we apologize for that if, that if that annoys you. But 
essentially that's the way we're going to have to do it because it just takes too long for us to go through and edit them and uh, my wife just doesn't isn't really into it <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i wanted to mention before uh and it seemed pertinent to this episode is one thing we've had on our website for a while is a link to Outbreaks, this uh, breakout for cell phones that uh, Woody and I uh, wrote. And a lot of people may say, is it real? Does it exist? It's been forever and I haven't seen it. Well, we really haven't had any time to work on it, but I can assure you it does exist and it is playable and it works great. I've seen it. It exists, yeah. And the only thing left is uh, finishing the networking code. Essentially what's going to happen is you can save your high scores to our server and compare them with other people. And I'm going to get that done this week. So I'm hoping by the time we do our next podcast, well, I'll say it today. By the time we do our next podcast, <laughs> we'll be able to download Outbreaks. I just need to get that done. So hopefully you guys, if you have cell phones that are J2ME enabled, have job on it, you'll be able to play that game and uh, compete with my high score. Uh, I'm not going to let anybody who's uh, beating me at... Uh, at Geometry Wars play. I'm going to ban you. No, I'm just kidding. I was just going to say, are you, is your next project going to be a Geometry Wars for cell phones? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that might be a little tricky. Yeah, I've thought about other things I want to do on the cell phone, though. So maybe some other classic gaming-related games I'll do on the cell phone. Cool. But uh, something cool to mess around with. So, uh, as always, uh, you know, if you guys want to, could you come check out our forums? It'd be great to hear from you. Uh, tell us whether we suck, whether you like the non-edited version. <laughs> <laughs> as compared to the edited ones it'd be great to hear from you guys um check us out at yahoo if you could go on there and give us some feedback as well as itunes and thanks for all you guys that stuck with us i know it was a uh, it was kind of sucky that we, we kind of disappeared from the earth for a while and uh but now we're back and uh and hopefully you're gonna enjoy the subsequent shows all right till next time yep see you in two weeks for sure this time Okay, during the podcast, there were a couple odd things that happened, and Tom didn't respond as he should. First of all, the beat mania. <laughs> In the notes, he said it was... Uh, can you read it, Tom? It's <laughs> In the notes, it says, beat mania, PS2, too hard without the special controller. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then on the uh, Nintendo thing, the whole uh, you're in the game, you didn't get either? We in the game. No, no you're in the game, you get it? Yeah, you I get, get it. it. See, it was it was funny, but like you guys didn't get it, so now it's not going to be as funny. I don't think we were listening. <laughs> <laughs> we talk, we don't listen. Yeah. <laughs> the other one I heard that I thought was kind of funny was like, I like to sh- play shooting games with my Wii. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. All right, one second. Do you like waving your controller around? <laughs> your Wii. <laughs> I'll bring my Wii with me everywhere. I don't know. I'm not too into that name, Wii, you know? No. Oh, the revolution. So much better.
All right, why don't you start it, Woody? Now we're going to talk about some news. Well, that's really bad, Woody. <laughs> You're really bad. 